as we record, we are recording on Thursday, November 19th. I have seen reports now on Twitter that people are saying that uh, the Apple pencils are actually starting to appear in retail stores. I saw somebody yeah. was in, in San Francisco, and there's a whole bunch of them available. Yeah, Yesterday, the Wednesday, the the eighteenth, there were a lot of reports that it looked to me like the they were making a, an effort to get them out. Like there were a whole bunch of reports of like I saw five of them here, and there were twenty of them there, and uh, I thought that was a good sign. And there's more of that today, so it looks like whatever was going on, <laughs> whatever logistical uh, bottleneck was there, maybe has has a uh, if not if it hasn't solved itself, at least has uh, widened the bottleneck a little bit. I'm curious to see what happens to people who like were promised three or four week shipping dates like a week or two ago, whether they start getting them way earlier than promised or whether the shipping ones still take as long as they had thought. Yeah, that's the I, I wonder sometimes if Apple has really thought through the whole dichotomy of uh, shipping versus Apple Store you know, retail store pickup, because yeah. with the Apple TV, I, I wonder how many returns they're going to get where people bought them the moment that it was for sale, um, had them sh had them shipped uh, on the cheaper shipping. So they would get them the next week and then found that they were all in the Apple stores on the on the day. That's what happened to me. I just I got my box and just put the label back on it and sent it back out because three days earlier, I, I just walked into my local Apple store and, and pick one up. Yeah. And this is like that, too, a little bit, where it's like, you know, if you could get one in the retail store and your order says it's going to be four weeks out, that's, you know, that's sort of silly. I mean, I get I get why they don't want to turn people away who want to buy an iPad Pro at the retail store and want a pencil with it. They want to kind of have a pencil for them. But yeah. uh, it would be frustrating if you were waiting at home for it for months. Yeah, and it just, it, it, it I, I, like, when you show it to people, it's like, just showing it to somebody. If you, if I didn't have the pencil, I would. I honestly don't even know what I would tell them. It's like here's a big iPad. Yeah, it is. I mean, you and did, the keyboard you is interesting. Smaller. <laughs> People definitely want to try the keyboard, and you know, yeah. and it's you know, and it's interesting to. You, it's easy to imagine a big iPad. It is different to actually sit down in front of it and and use it. Um, but just for like the first minute or two, everybody wants to use the pencil. Yeah. How could you not? How could you not? And even though it's not like there haven't been. Uh, styluses for for iPads before, but this is, you know, it's the Apple stylus, so it's got that kind of attraction around it. And the, the idea is, and it sounds like this is bearing out for everybody we know who actually knows about drawing things like Serenity Caldwell, yeah. um, that it really does deliver on that. That its precision is pretty amazing, and that on uh, apps that have been updated, it, the lag is very very minimal. Yeah, yeah, totally. I I think it's bearing out and the palm rejection is all bearing out as oh, yeah. promised um i i've been trying to like figure this out and look at how they're doing the palm rejection and it I, i'm sure it's probably more than this but it seems like the two things i can tell that they're doing is and the one is obvious which is kind of looking for what i'll just call a fat touch meaning like the meaty part of your palm and just rejecting it outright that wow, that is a, that is either an enormous thumb or that's that's the palm. But the other thing that they're doing is like in a drawing mode. I could see it in the Notes app when you're in the little sketch mode in Notes. Is sometimes when you push your palm down, you'll get a, a a false hit, and it'll put like a little drawing mark there. It's hard to see sometimes. You know, you kind of have to look at it at an angle because 
your palm actually covers it, but it puts like a little false pen mark down. But yeah, then as soon as the dot. pen touches, it just says, oh, okay, you're using the pen. Throw that, throw that last mark away. Yeah, and which I think has there. something to do with their – they've got this whole touch coalescing thing. I mean they're trying to, they're trying to view – it's not a one-to-one. It's a little bit like uh, autocorrect for typing I think where yeah. it's, it's trying to look holistically at sort of like what it's getting input on the screen and make some judgments. And they may be sort of in real time they're trying to figure out what actually is going on instead of just it being – I think the old style touch screens were much more of a one-to-one kind of thing. It's What it's not – I'll tell you what it's not is it's not locking out everything but the pencil. Because you can actually, I don't know if you've tried this, but if you put two fingers down on the screen in notes, you'll get the ruler. Yep. It'll actually bring up the ruler. And then you can, with your other hand, you can draw on the ruler Yeah, and it'll yeah. snap with the pencil. Yeah. So it's not like it's locking out the screen from other, from fingers. Like it, right. that's not it. It is looking for that meaty blob of a... Of a of a of the side of your hand or or of the the butt of your of of your palm and realizing what it is and saying I'm just going to ignore that right and if it does get I wonder if it hmm, maybe but it's I think it's probably some kind of reasonable distance you know like if you had if you had a finger way apart from the pen it's going to know that that's not a touch from the hand holding the pen because it's too far away it's like that distance of when you're gripping a pencil in a, you know, a pencil grip, that that touch that's maybe like, what is that, about two or three inches away. Okay, that's, and it, and it happened a half second before the pen began drawing. That's the one to throw away. Yeah, you're right. I just actually did it where I, I put my finger and the pen down simultaneously very close to each other and started moving. And yeah. um, and that the finger mark started and then vanished because I yes. realized you're yeah. kind of go- going along with the pen. You, you, you weren't meant to be there. Yeah. I think long, long story short, uh, it's and, and we can go long after the short version, but uh, I think that even though I'm not an artist, I just appreciate it. I, and I just like playing with it and I'm excited by it that it's one of the most exciting things Apple's done in a long time. Like this is the sort of thing that we look to Apple to do and now they've done it. Yeah, this is, I, I feel like, uh, right. They, they, so much of the story of this product, I think in hindsight is stuff that Apple really didn't make much of an effort to integrate into the iPad until the moment when Apple wanted to build its own thing that was integrated hardware and software. And so you get all the keyboard stuff in iOS 9 is really leading to the smart keyboard. And the reason that they haven't done higher resolution digitizer, you know, more uh, 240 megahertz uh, or 240 hertz scanner on the digitizer, why didn't they do all that stuff? Because they weren't ready for it. And and now they're ready for it, and and so the the pencil is the gets to be first out the door because of course it is because it's the Apple accessory. Yeah, did I saw something. Is it was it? Do you know? Was there like a teardown of the pencil finally? I think there was one. I'm not sure. I read it, but yeah. uh, they did. I think they did take it apart. Um, I still don't think anybody has figured out exactly how it works. But like from what I've been able to piece together, I don't. I think I was wrong in my review when I guessed that there's uh like some kind of new sensor like something in the ipad to detect the pencil instead i'm i'm almost certain that what's going on is that the regular touch sensors in the glass uh are still touch 
still detect skin the same way, but that they've added into the exact same layer the ability to detect the pencil. And the way that the pencil makes itself known is it emits some kind of like a radio wave of some sort at a known, very specific frequency. Hmm. Um, but that it's not a different thing that's picking that up. It's actually the same as the touch sensors. And that somehow it's like the, the radio wave stuff is so precise is that that's what allows it. Like if you imagine that it's a grid of sensors with capacitive touch where it touches your finger, it's always looking for a bunch of them to light up at once because you're, you know, it's like your little quarter of an inch round fingertip that's touching. And so it's lighting up all of these at once. And then with a pencil, it's right down to the actual pixels, including the ability to sort of tell when it's between pixels. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know enough about this to, to something funny is going on, of course, because when we know that because you can't use it on another screen. It is right. it is not trying to trick the device into thinking that it's a it's a really thin finger. Right. Right. Something there. It is some whether it's a radio signal or it's a, an electric uh, signal of some kind that's not the kind that you would pick up from a from a finger. There's something going on where it's it's doing it and getting that precise. Uh, you know, it knows exactly where right. that the pencil is, and when, right. and and then and then it also is talking by Bluetooth and registering the pressure, so it knows when it's down and not. Right. Long story short, it, I, I'm I'm nearly certain that they didn't add a second sensor grid for it. What they did is make the existing sensor grid smarter and and have it looking for this other new thing, this hmm. this short term radio burst. Um, here's a weird thing that I didn't write about. I haven't really seen anybody else write about, but I still. I'm not sure what to think about it. Um, but it really seems very strange to me is the fact that there is no there is no interface to the pencil other than plugging it into the lightning port. So you you charge it that way and you register it with the iPad that way. But then once you do that, once you have a fully charged iPad or pencil, once you have a fully charged pencil and it's paired, you never turn it on, never turn it off, and you never get any indication that it's on, off, low on battery, or anything. Yeah, it's like a... Uh, I mean, we joke sometimes about Apple saying magical a lot and about how it wants to make uh, its products kind of black boxes that you can't look into. But this pencil is is like... Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pander to you and say this is the this is the pencil that's on the desk that uh, Dave Bowman. Uh, mm. wakes up in right it is like it, look human we have made a pencil and it's this perfectly white and a little bit silver slick kind of object that it, it, it i know it's shaped like a pencil but it can't really be a pencil right and it, it that's what it feels like to me is it, it has no interface you're right it has no kind of markings other than the little silver circle and yeah you can get to the the lightning port if you take the cap off and you can unscrew the tip but it is featureless it is just I mean, it is literally featureless. Like, not just like its looks of features, but its features. It's you don't do anything with it except draw. It's it's very clever, and I think it's also very much in line with Apple's design philosophy, which is to have as little there as possible. Yeah, it's we've we often joke about Apple stuff that you know they they try to ship stuff with one button, but ultimately they want to ship something with no buttons. No buttons. And the pencil is the no button device. There's, yeah. I. And there is this part of me that kind of wants it to light, have like a green, just a little green dot that lights up when it's on and being used. 
and then it turns off when it's sleeping or whatever. Um, but now here I am, you know, two weeks later and I don't have that and it's never been an issue. Like yeah. I kind of see why they didn't do that. But and I just assume it wakes up based on some, based on motion or something or based on, based on, I don't even know what it is. I don't but I assume know. It goes, it saves some battery when you, when you lay it down, it doesn't move for a while or something. Well, Right, it because right. it seems to, I still haven't even recharged it, and I've been playing with it for two weeks or something. I don't, I, I don't. It it definitely gets a long battery life, so it can't be sitting there emitting these waves, you know, until it's in use. But on the other hand, too, like if it was just in your backpack, though, moving moving around as you walk around, I don't think it's on. I'm not quite sure when it turns on or what that means, or maybe. Like a lot of these things, you like in the way that your um, uh, your iPhone can use the motion coprocessor to count your steps, and it's not really having a significantly adverse effect on the battery life of your phone compared to all the other things that can actually drain your phone. Maybe they put like the equivalent of like a little M6 in the pencil, and it's always there, kind of detecting similar things. I don't know. But it's kind of crazy. Isn't that wild, though, that it doesn't even tell you if it's on, off, or low on charge? Yeah, it's it's featureless. It's empty. It's just a blank, right? It's just an implement that you hold in your hand and use it against the, the glass surface, and things happen. It's, so it is that. The big downside to it is that if it is out of battery, the only way you're going to know that is by like having it fail on screen. Like You're going to go to use it, and you're going to stab at the screen and it's like the the experience of figuring out that your pencil is run has run out of power is exactly the same as the experience of having a pencil that isn't yet paired with your iPad. I think Which, the difference is that your iPad knows how much battery is in there. And if you not only can you swipe down um in in notification center it will there's a batteries thing that will show you the iPad's battery and also the Apple Pencil's battery. Um, and I, I would imagine that. I would imagine that it tells you, that the iPad tells you when you need to charge your Apple Pencil. So I just swipe down and I can see that this pencil that I'm holding in my hand is 26% battery. But that's the interface. It's on the iPad. It's not, you know, it's not in the pencil. I think I screwed myself by like, uh, I at one point in my review process, I just left it plugged in and I, I used it a lot, the pencil, and then I plugged it in and for no reason it wasn't like it was out i just plugged it in and left it plugged in and it so it obviously filled back up and so i haven't i haven't run it back down yet but yet i i say i screwed myself because i really did want to kind of see what you know does it give you a warning like that yeah I guess so that I, is right. I, I haven't seen it give me a warning yet hmm. but i i can see that it's a 26 percent. so that's like the one place yeah. where i can i can tell that it's communicating beyond the actual drawing is that hmm. it, it tosses in a little battery info mm -hmm. into the notification center. Uh, I had lunch today with uh, 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 Lauren Brichter, ah. of, uh, formerly of uh, Twitter, inventor of Pull to Refresh, Tweety, et cetera, et cetera. Hadn't, he hadn't seen it yet, so I brought it along and, and he got to play with it. And his first comment was, um, and it's sort of like what you said about sort of like this, you know, the 2001 style industrial design or, or like I, you know, futuristic space aliens have made this pencil that it is absolute. It's so, he said, this is such an Apple device. It is so beautiful, but also 
this is not a material that anybody has ever used to create a pen out of before. Like, nobody's ever made a pen or pencil that is slick. Yeah. And it's not to say that it's slippery, and I don't know that it's even a problem, but it is a sort of material that nobody would have would ever have used for this before. It's a little slippery. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it reminded me of, uh, I mean, pencils, depending on you get a brand new pencil out of the box, and it's got that fresh coat of enamel paint on it, um, it's not that far off from that. I think the difference is that I'm used to pencils that have, um, you know, that they're they're not round, they're flat, they're 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 whatever hexagonal or octagonal. They've got the little flat surfaces that come together to make the pencil, and this is just perfectly smooth and perfectly round, and it would roll right off your desk, except it's weighted so that it will stop. Right. Um, I will say this, and you know, we can we could do a whole, I could do a whole two hour show just on stationary pens and pencils um but a very very uh popular style of ink pencil i mean talking about real real pens here are like a, a pilot g what do they call them g3s i don't use the pilots anymore but the gel you know the clicky yeah, I've gel got a g2 pens. right here yeah the g2 um which and you know i use the ones from zebra there's uh, a couple of other brands but you know they they started in Japan now they're very popular around the world but my point is they all all of them share a design thing which is that down where you grip it there's a like a piece of rubber mm-hmm. um which just to me seems like total common sense but it's I, I don't know I'm I'm curious what people like one of the things I'm curious now that the pencil is going from okay Apple released a new thing it's a novelty to okay people are actually using it is what are the people who who are going to use this thing for like hours at a time for work going to say about the ergonomics of the materials and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm I not think so sure good, that it's comfortable. I'm not. I'm not either. But again, I'm. A, I, I don't think pens in general are comfortable. I don't like handwriting. Once I could stop turning in my papers in school, uh, handwritten, and could start typing them all, I was a right. very happy person. But yeah, it struck me right away that there was no. Uh, I've gotten used to the, the grip on the G2 at the bottom. Um, there's no clip on it. Um, and I guess maybe that goes back to this sort of Apple philosophy of the, I think it's what uh, our friend John Syracuse calls the naked robotic core. Like, right. make it build the product for its essence, almost knowing that if you want to add something to it, people will build things to add to it. But that Apple, if Apple adds those things on, then you can't opt out of them. And, and this definitely feels like somebody's going to want to make a grip for it and somebody's going to want to make a clip for it and a, a little inkwell kind of thing for people to, to stash it when they're not using it. All of those things will be made for it. But Apple wanted to kind of get it all the way to its base. Um, and whether that's right or wrong, I mean, I think it depends on whether you like uh, holding it in its base form. If 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 there are a lot of people who think, no, no, I just want this and nothing more, it would kind of be a shame if it had other things on top of it. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, I, I don't, it's another one of those things that probably, if it's not out already, there's going to, there's got to be like some Kickstarters from people who are going to make replacement caps that the only difference is that it has a clip. Yeah. Or even, or even just some kind of asymmetrical nubbin so that it doesn't roll at all. Right, a little clip-on clip so you can put it in your pocket or something I think would be a natural, and I'm sure somebody's already got that 3D printed and you yeah. know, ready for Kickstarter. Yeah. It's almost like, and I feel like that's also sort of Apple's decision on, on the much-observed point that there's nowhere to put it officially. <laughs> Yeah. Meaning, let's just say, compare and contrast with the Newton, 
where there was an official place to put the stylus with the Newton. It was a socket right in the top of the Newton. And obviously that design wouldn't work for this because the pencil is actually thicker than the, the iPad. Um, or if it isn't, it's so close that it, there's no way that a socket would have, would have worked. Um, but they wouldn't have done that anyway, just because I think that there's, that's not really their <laughs> style anymore. Yeah, I'm a little surprised there isn't an optional, you know, something. And probably they looked and just couldn't find a way to make it make sense. I mean, you could use the magnets and clip it to the side magnetically, but they're probably not strong enough to really reliably leave it there. And the last thing you want to do is have it fall off and break on the floor. So, you know, instead, it's just you find another place to put it. And yeah, people will figure it out. Well, and I was a little surprise i mean this goes all the way back to september because i could see you know in the hands-on area that this was the case because they had the the covers for it but on that day i was a little surprised that they didn't have on the smart cover and smart keyboard something you know whether it's just Mm -hmm. a flap that you could stick it in or a magnet or some you know something on the cover that is meant for a well okay, you can't connect it to the iPad Pro itself, but if you get our cover or our keyboard, there's a little place here where you can put your pen, uh, pencil. And they didn't do that. And I guess it's because not everybody gets the pencil. And so then the thing where you would put the pencil would look, you know, if you got the cover but not the pencil, it would look like you're missing a pencil. Yeah, I think that's I think that's behind a lot of these decisions is it is not as as much as we all talk about it and write about it, it is not an essential feature of this product. And so you can't build it with the assumption that everybody's going to have one. Exactly. All right, let me take a break here and thank our first sponsor. And it's a new sponsor. I'm very very excited about this. This episode is being brought to you by Braintree. Braintree uh lets you code for easy online payments. If you're building a mobile app and you are searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. They have an SDK, makes it easy to offer multiple payment types. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin even, uh, Venom, which I've never even heard of, uh, cards, of course, and more, all with a single integration. One small snippet of code and you're all set up in less than 10 minutes. That's how easy they say it is. Um, to learn more, and you get your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintree.com slash the talk show. Um, they're, they're, I mean, these guys, are their talking points for this are hell-bent on how easy this is to implement. Not only do they say it's only going to take 10 minutes, they say if you don't even have time, if you're, you're worried about how long it's going to take to integrate, you can sign up and call them and they have people on the other end of the phone who will walk you through the integration of hooking hooking up the SDK. Um, SDKs for iOS, Android, and JavaScript for doing it through the web. Uh, and seven different languages. Uh, .NET, Node.js, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, Ruby, all sorts of stuff like that. Elegant code, clear documentation, and literally, they're saying you can integrate this into your app with 10 lines of code in your app. So go check them out if you're a developer looking for payments, braintree.com slash the talk show. 10 lines of code, can't beat that. That's pretty good. Um, so you had a piece, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, and I thought it really, really echoed my thinking on this. And I kind of touched on it but skipped about it is this whole issue of 
okay, now with the iPad Pro and with iOS 9 and where it is today, can you use your iPad? Can you use an iPad Pro for work? Which is sort of, I, I think the problem is that that's not a fair question. I feel like you need to specify what the work is. But I thought you had a good piece that was more or less, for some definition of work, yes. And for your work, mostly yes. But that it's, with 20-some years of Mac experience under your belt and all of this stuff, maybe the answer is still just that you don't want to. Yeah, I, I counted it's 26. <laughs> Fall of 89 uh, is when I started using the Mac. I remember, I actually remembered from your article that it was exactly 26 because it was such an, it, an uneven number. I figured it must have been exactly right, but I didn't want to say that because it makes us sound old. So yeah, I, just, I, I went with 20-some. I, I know, 20-some. Well, it could be even worse, but it's probably better. Yeah, it, it was because it was my, my sophomore year in college, and I was uh, I started working at the newspaper, and they were all Mac there, and I had an Apple II. So I'd used a Mac a couple of times before, but that was the point where I stopped using my Apple II, basically, and I did all my work on the on the Macs at the newspaper office, even my schoolwork, because I didn't want to go back. Um, but that's a lot of that's a lot of history. <laughs> Yeah, I I think it's absolutely true that you can't say the i the iPad and iOS in general are not possible uh, tools to use to do your job. I mean, yeah, there are going to be jobs where the software isn't there, and they're very particular. This is the internet, right? So people are going to say, well, actually, <laughs> my profession, I can't do on that. It's like, I'll grant you, there are professions that where you can't. But if you're talking about general kind of, I look at spreadsheets, and I write documents, and I answer email, and the kind of businessy jobs we think of, and I'm on the web, um, of course, the of course iOS can do that. Of course, the iPad can do that. I think my realization in spending, like so many of us who write about these products, have done over the last few days, which is uh, use the iPad Pro a lot to to, yeah. to try to do things that we don't normally do on an iPad. It became clear to me that it was not the issue. wasn't Could it do it? The issue was the migration thing. It's like you know, some for something to be worth uh, migrating to from a place where you're really comfortable and you've set up. Like I've got scripts, and you you're like this yeah. too. I know I've got scripts, I've got a workflow, I've got apps, I've got everything set up. I feel like I've super optimized um, what I do on my Mac for me over the course of 26 years, and it, it get it for me to switch from that to something new. You know, there's the hit you have to take. You have to learn new apps. You have to learn new automation processes. You've got to put in, invest hours and hours of time to get back to where you were. And that's a, that's a pretty decent calculation that you can make. You can say, look, even if it's as good as the Mac is today, and let's just grant it that, you might, that might not be worth it because there's too much effort that's going to have to go into it to move over there. Or when you get there, it's going to turn out that you're not quite as effective, you're not as fast as as uh, as you were on the Mac. And uh, so I would say that I, I came to the realization because um, I had a lot of podcasts in Logic, and I've had a bunch of people say, well, you should really try Audition yeah. uh, from Adobe. And and I had the same sort of thing, which is Audition might be better than Logic. I'm not sure if it is for, for what I do, but let's say it's arguable that I would be 
better off editing and audition than Logic, that's not good enough. It's got to be a lot better because I'm going to take a huge hit when I move and have to learn a new thing. And sometimes it doesn't, I mean, you don't. You never want to say no to learning a new thing, but sometimes the math doesn't work where it's like, it's incrementally better, <laughs> but I will be so far in the hole in terms of my learning that I'm never going to be, it's never going to pay off or it won't pay off for years and years. And you don't know until you try whether it's actually going to be better or not. So that, that was my realization with with the iPad is that probably 90% of the things that I've got set up to do on my Mac, I don't use very often and I don't need to bring over. I, I don't need to list like, oh, I've got 100 scripts in BB Edit that I need to change. It's probably not that, but there are things that I would have to adapt to. And, and uh, you know, I, I, that I think is going to be a problem for everybody. Fortunately, we don't have to switch, right? I mean, right. I I can foresee using an iPad when I travel now in a way that I couldn't foresee it a year or two ago. Not abandoning the, the Mac entirely, but using the iPad as a substitute when I want to travel light. I could see that now, but you know that requires me to put in some time and, and change my workflow and some of the things that I do and, and adapt to new tools. But it's, it's a matter of like choice. And for somebody who's younger and who doesn't really have those ties and hasn't super you know, uh, automated their their computer experience then that barrier is completely gone yeah and uh in a couple of ways podcasting is a a pretty <laughs> fun example right because editing podcasts now you mentioned that people are saying that you should recommending you switch from logic to um Adobe, Adobe Edition, yeah. On, that's on the Mac. But you did find you, there is a new iOS app, and so you actually edited an episode of, was it The Incomparable? Yeah. Uh, on the iPad. What's the name of the app? The app is called Ferrite. F-E-R-R-I-T-E. Yeah. And it's free with two in-app purchases. It's basically, if you want to unlock all the features, it's $20. But you can try it without, and you can unlock half the features for 10 and then go buy the other half for 10 and um, yeah, I tried it. I actually, I tried it and I was thinking, wow, th these guys who wrote this totally read my mind. And then later I discovered that they actually <laughs> right. had had read my site right. and had and seen been, my... And have been like listening to your shows and uh -huh. listening to your, <laughs> you're like, well, I, you know, one of the things that would keep me from being able to work on an iPad iPad would be I need to edit podcasts and if I wanted to edit podcasts on an iPad I would need this 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 mm -hmm. and all those features are in Ferrite which is it was that moment of like are they reading my mind and it turns out no they're actually reading what I've written and they were working on it but that was like I, I think it was a good I didn't inspire the app but I think I uh, to be created but I think I maybe inspired some of the feature choices that they made which is awesome because that's great for me it's really nice when somebody builds an app and keeps you in mind when they're doing it but um, I also forgot that in June the guy uh, wrote to me and said, do you have any sample files? Because I want to use like real world examples. And I sent him an episode of The Incomparable that was down to the, just to the tracks. And I said, here it is. And I totally forgot about it. And I sat down uh, and edited, not remembering any of that. I edited uh, an episode. And you know, it's the thing, I, I did this with Logic once. I did this with Audition once. Uh, before I switched to Logic, I definitely tried it where you take a run at it and you're like, all right, experiment could I use this other tool to do this thing that I do every week that is, you know, mission critical that if, if I'm, if I'm 25% slower, I I'm going to not be able to do my job because like literally I've, I've got it 
totally wired and it needs to be fast and it needs to be like this or I can't switch. Right. And I, I expected to get 10 minutes in and be like, well, it was a nice try, iPad, but <laughs> this is not going to happen. And uh, like an hour and a half later, which is about maybe two hours, it's the standard time it takes me to edit an episode of The Incomparable. I had edited the entire episode. And about halfway through, I was like, oh, man. I'm actually going to edit this whole thing right here. And it was pretty great. I mean, there were some issues. Uh, it was it went a lot faster when I had the keyboard than when I was just doing touch. But it was pretty it was pretty great. And some of that was the screen size and some of that was the power, uh, although I think I could probably do it on the iPad Air. But um, that was a funny moment where I realized that when I had the right tool, the iPad was, uh, was great for that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I do think, I think there's a, a just to, to step back a little bit to where we were five minutes ago, which was this: when did you first start using a Mac? And that transition from using something with like a command line interface as the main interface to the computer to the GUI, I do feel that we're that this is the same type of transition. Absolutely, overall. absolutely. Except that one was it was different in a few ways to, for me at least, where the difference with the command line to GUI transition was that it was going to replace it for everybody. That this is clear that for almost everything, and obviously, you know, you Macs today still ship with a terminal app, and and I know that for you know the main use I can think of is people who do like system administration type things, just use you know terminal and an SSH connection, and for good reason that there's you know that that's actually a really good remote interface to something that might be slow, and there are things that you can do remotely administering a, a faceless server that the command line is just fine for if you're an expert but you know from 99 point some very large tenth digit you know nobody needs to ever see that whereas with this transition i really do think that steve jobs's trucks and cars analogy is just an amazingly good analogy which is that for whatever odd reason, we made everybody drive a truck for a long time until we finally got good enough at this and came up with ideas that were more like a car. Um, but, you know, just go out on a highway in any state in the country and you're going to see an awful lot of people who drive pickup trucks. But it's clearly not the, the majority. And yeah, there's no I, reason for it. Yeah, I mean, the command line thing, what struck me about it is... is <laughs> The, uh, so many of the arguments were the same, right? It was like, well, when you, when you start using a Mac, back in the day, it was, well, you can't do, I can delete every file with this name in it by just <laughs> typing a quick command in DOS. Right. And can you do can you do that? I can write a program and run it, and, and you know, but you can't do that on the Mac. And totally true, right? Totally true. But the <laughs> that, answer was <laughs> we had our own ways, right? We had our right. own nerdy things that we did that weren't those ways. And that they were right about those, but you know, the Mac was just different. It didn't do those, but and that's the same argument, right? It's like, oh well the iPad, it's not powerful. You can't do this thing you can do on the Mac. It's like totally true. Right. You could it was that the <laughs> the argument about being able to delete to delete like every file with the same you yeah. know extension. You know, what was the DOS command for it? Dell was like the equivalent of RM. RM, um, right, yeah. Right, that you could do... Uh, star dot star, sure. <laughs> Dell, or Dell star dot TXT or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, <laughs> it's such a bad argument because being... and Because that was a command that was, uh, you know, like there was no undo. <laughs> it was... It, it, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's well, like it's, how it's fast. It's a nerd can argument, you... though. It's like right. power. I can, I, I'm, you know, I can take this thing. Right. I, I, my car can go 150. It's like, okay, well, good luck with that. <laughs> right. You know, if you're not on the autobahn, that's probably not that practical, and you might get yourself killed. Right. But good, you know, good for you that your car can theoretically go that fast. But it was a point of pride and flexibility. And right. I hear the same things when people when I read about the iPad, and I'm not Federico Vitici, right? I don't. I'm not a 99% on the iPad, but I I'm open minded enough about it that I hear from people who are like, no, never because of X and Y that it doesn't do that the Mac does. And it's like, you're right, the, the Mac does those things and it doesn't. I'm not sure in the end that for the people who are going to want to use the product, those things are going to matter. And the fact like the fact that it doesn't do Apple Script and it doesn't have um, it doesn't have uh, some of the automation utilities that run in the background and stuff. That's true, but it's got its own scripting and its own automation utilities. They're just different and. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll there are OS iOS nerdiness is there already. It's just not the same as Mac nerdiness, and and uh, that you know that's going to be off putting for some people. I, I don't know the truck metaphor. I, I I see what you're saying in in some ways, but I don't think it's going to be a matter of that the that the touch interface is inappropriate or that the devices aren't aren't powerful enough i'm starting to think and that's why i mentioned 26 years of using the mac i'm starting to think that it's going to be in some ways generational that mm. it's that it's like i'm more comfortable using these tools and this way and this industry is more comfortable with these tools that are used this way and i'm not sure that people who are um, you know your kids age my kids age are going to feel that way or even people in like in their 20s or 30s people who haven't invested like uh in their computers as a nerdy platform but just as a, a you know a standard tool that they use to get things done because um it's you know i do think that these that the ios devices are capable of doing this stuff it, that's not the issue it's not like you know you can't load a couch into the back of your car but you can into a pickup yeah. truck it's it's more like uh maybe like how we'll get with self-driving cars where some people are going to want to drive their own car and other people are going to be like yeah i don't care yeah. where it's it's about like what what's your preference and what tools are you comfortable with and i don't think there's anything wrong with that i don't think anybody should feel threatened that um, I mean, Ma Apple feels very strongly like the Mac is uh, is a, a tool, and iOS is a tool, and you can use them as you choose and for the for the right jobs. And I think that's a good attitude to have. That you know, there, it's not either or, and um, you know, people shouldn't feel threatened by one or the other. But they do. Some people they totally do. do. Right? And <laughs> and like. I heard from some of the, like some of the, you know, and, and I, if you're listening, if you're one of the people who's emailed me and, and sort of angrily denounced Tim Cook, this was all, it started with Tim Cook telling the, the newspaper in England that he, you know, he was, he was, I don't know, maybe he's still in Europe. I don't know, but he was on like an extended trip in Europe. He was, you know, visiting a couple countries over there. And he said that for this trip, all he's, all he carries with him was his iPhone and his iPad Pro. Uh, and presumably his watch. Um, in fact, I, some, I, somebody pointed out that in one of the pictures, he's clearly wearing his watch. No surprise. Um, and I heard from readers who were like, that's BS. You know, Maybe if you're an executive and you've got a staff that travels with you that can do your work, you could do your work with it. But it's like, I think people underestimate, a lot of people underestimate how, how there are a lot of jobs in a lot of places where you can you really could just do your job with nothing but, communication tools really if you can read on the device and you can you know send email and do iMessage and slack or whatever similar type thing if it's mostly about communicating uh 
you can easily do all your work with an iPad and a phone or even just a phone. Yeah, and and our audiences are, you know, they're 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 more advanced than a lot of people. They care about this stuff at a, to a degree that a lot of people don't. I think that that I think that's all all true, but that's why when I I hate to be so reductive because everybody's different. Everybody has different needs and there're going to be some people I talk to them and they say, "Can I do X?" It used to be, "Can I switch to the Mac from a PC?" I have these needs and sometimes I would just say, I don't think it's a good idea, right? Because right. sometimes the, it's just a, it's the tools aren't there. I, I, uh, my, you know, my dad was a dentist, and and they talked to to other dentists would say, "What about this?" And I'd be like, "You know, all the dentistry software is on Windows, so you should probably just get PCs." I wish I could help you, but you know, th- this is probably the safest option. And the same is true with going to iOS. But when I look, I mean, I I was talking to David Sparks the other day, and he said to me, it was funny. He said to me something I had been thinking in the last few days using the iPad Pro, which is, he said, "You know, I think." think Word is better on iOS than it is on the Mac. And it's, I totally agree. I think Microsoft Office on the iPad is way better than Office is, at least for my uses and, and, and in my testing with it, than it is on the Mac. It just, it feels really good. It's really, these are class of the platform kind of apps. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people whose jobs are entirely Microsoft Office and email, and you can use Outlook for that or whatever, and the web. And and that's those are their jobs. And they're not specialized in any way. And those kind of jobs where you're not having to dive deep into a particular vertical, you know, platform thing thing, um, why not do that on an iPad? I mean, whether you want to use an external keyboard or not, not to say that you have to, but you could. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to take another break, but when we come back and, and this is where my podcast amnesia strikes in, what I want to talk about next is I want to go right from there into, to me, the lack of thought that Apple or maybe not thought, but the lack of, of running code that lets you use the iPad with a keyboard connected. In other words, that you can't na- more or less, why can't you navigate the whole interface with the keyboard? But right. first, I want to tell you about our good friends at Squarespace. You guys know Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is the easiest way to build a website. You just go there. Let's say you want to have a personal website. You want to make a blog. Or let's say you want to start a podcast. Or let's say you are a business that you want to set up an online store. Any of those things you can do it with Squarespace. Squarespace is just like, it's it's like Legos for building a website. Uh, it is so easy and they take care of everything. They You can register your domain with them. They obviously take care of the hosting, but they've got these great drag and drop visual tools, templates to choose from, um, both in terms of setting up a style, like a visual style for what your site's going to look like, or just the templates for... Um, setting up different types of sites, like the difference between a portfolio, like if you're an artist and you're setting up a portfolio site to show off all of the work that you're done. They have that built in as as something that you can already start with and just make it work. Um, everything looks professional. You go through Squarespace, you get a professionally designed website. Uh, you don't need to learn know, know any sort of code. It is intuitive, easy to use. You don't need, it's not like you're programming a website, you're creating it visually. Uh, But if you do know how to code, there are hooks that you can break in. You can insert your own JavaScript, that sort of thing. Um, So you can customize it if you want to. Uh, 
huge websites. They can handle all of the traffic you're ever going to get. And it starts, they have plans that start at eight bucks a month. So here's what you can do. You can go there, you get a free trial, no credit card required. Just go to squarespace.com. And uh, when you do sign up, just remember this, the code is Gruber, my last name. Just remember that. And if you use that, when you do sign up for Squarespace, uh, you will get 10% off your first purchase when you do it. So just keep it in mind. Next time you need to build a website, go to Squarespace first and remember that code, Gruber. All right, so we want to. I want to talk about this. I wrote, touched on this in my review, and more and more, I think, like if I continue writing about the iPad Pro, I think it's the main thing I want to write about. Like I'm, I love the pencil, but I feel like because I'm not an artist, it's not really for me to go into depth about it. But I yep. do, I do use a keyboard sometimes, and I, it really, the more I think about it, the more it drives me crazy that that this is not more deeply integrated into the iPad. And and here's what I'm thinking. I think it comes down to, all right, when they first made the iPhone and they said, Steve Jobs is up on stage and he's talking about how, what they did. And he says, it runs OS 10. And it's this, you know, for years and years and years, everybody, would, you know, we'd had this, this, what if Apple could do a stripped down version of Mac OS that would run on a smaller device? I mean, it, I say Mac OS because I would say that the dream of, a, a quote unquote stripped down Mac OS that runs on a handheld device even predates Mac OS 10. Um, yeah. And here it is. They've finally done it. And it's, you know, it's wow. How did they do it? And, and it's not by running Mac apps, right? And there's no menu bar. They, it's like they went back to ground zero and rethought the entire user interface. And there are certain things that carried over, like the idea that there's uh, an app. And to launch the app, you you know what you would double click on the Mac, you just tap it on the phone. Very similar, other things very different, right? Like buttons were the same, like a push button. You tap. What do you do with a push button? Well, the same obvious thing you do on a Mac. You know what you would click on the Mac, you tap here. Uh, other things though, very different. I feel like with the iPad, and to me especially with the iPad Pro, and when it's hooked up to a keyboard. If all you did was lock up some good designers and say, here's the form factor. We've already finished the hardware. It's this 12-inch piece of glass with a touchscreen, and it has this incredible resolution, and here's the keyboard it can connect to. What does the user interface look like to this? Like, what is the, the home screen? What's the root level, like, when you're just starting? I don't think anybody would come up with what, what the iPad home screen looks like. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's so clearly like when the iPhone was not the Mac, o, you know, what we think of as Mac OS just shrunk down to fit on the screen with a menu bar at the top and little draggable windows. That's exactly what they've done with the iPad though. They've just taken the phone interface and, and moved it to this new thing. And now that it's more capable and now that it's, it really is fast enough to be like treated as a Mac. I feel like, it's it's almost painful that Apple hasn't been more ambitious with the interface to this. Well, I, I think this goes back to, you know, the it, it, this is the iPhone OS, right? <laughs> it's the iPhone OS, and and it was formulated for a very small screen. And when they took it up to the iPad, 
they didn't do a lot to change it other than to say, you know, you've got more room to spread out your interface. And we've gone with that. iOS 9 shows some signs, right, that they're they're like, oh, we need to really address this now. But it took them, people are out there using keyboards on the on this thing for years and got very little support beyond the most rudimentary, like, yes, we will support Bluetooth keyboards. Um, and, uh, and it's only with iOS 9 that they really have, have been kicked into gear. And so they're kind of behind in it. But you're right. Um, it's not, it's not the interface that you would build for this device. It's an interface that's evolved from the original iPhone, essentially. And there's still parts of it that haven't evolved very much. I mean, the, the springboard, the home screen is, um, not evolved essentially at all. And, uh, there are lots of other parts that on the iPad pro, it's just sort of a stretched out version of what was on the iPad air. So, you know, it, it's... I don't know. I, I've seen people suggest that they ought to make, uh, you know, they ought to consider this, uh, you know, iPad OS, and that it's that it's something that needs to be. Whether you call it something different or not, it needs to. It needs more investment into features that only matter for the iPad. That that it's it, on one level, it's totally understandable. The iPhone is so huge that you want to devote so much iOS development time to features that the iPhone will use. But I I wonder sometimes if it's a self fulfilling prophecy a little bit that. Um, the iPad isn't growing because they aren't putting the work in and making it more of a product than it could be. And, and it, you know, it's always the iPhone that gets the priority, it seems, except with these new features in iOS 9, it's felt like, you know, it really is about the iPhone and the iPad is lucky to kind of come along. And I, the iPad Pro could be a lot better if there were more features that took advantage of things like an external keyboard. And I'm not saying it needs a mouse and drop down menus, which... Um, you know, because right. then, then it's a Mac, but it, more than it's got now. Right. I definitely think that a mouse pointer is not the right way to go. I feel like that's this, I, I'm, I'm fully on board with exactly, you know, what Apple's executives, you know, Tim Cook, Phil Schiller, uh, I think even Eddie in a, in a couple of interviews, Eddie Q. Um, I, I really, I don't think it's spin. I think they truly believe this. And I do too, that the Mac and I, iPad, OS are not going to converge. There's not going to be any sort of point in the foreseeable future. I mean, like years and years out where everything is just one OS and you can touch your iMac 5K. I really think that it, it and I, I think the mouse pointer interface isn't going anywhere. And that's in Apple world, that's called the Mac and the touch interface isn't going anywhere. Um, but there needs to be some kind of directional input that's not touching the screen. And I think, it, you know, Apple TV shows how that's possible, right? And I know that it's – even the old Apple TV, which just had the, the – with no swipe pad, it just had up, down, left, right. You know, you could do it. And I feel like the new one with the touchpad, uh, it even shows even more how possible it is. And this focus engine that they have where it, it you have these selections and it just shows you based on the depth – I'm not saying that that's exactly what they could move to the iPad because then I don't think it would work with touch, right? Like right. I, I, I think if they put the focus engine UI on the iPad for use with a keyboard with like the arrow keys or with a trackpad, um, a trackpad that isn't there, but if they added a hypothetical trackpad, um, you could do the focus. The focus thing would definitely work, and I think that would be pretty useful. And then you could use the trackpad to move the insertion point around in text editing views and all of that would work and be useful and not introduce a mouse pointer which i think is problematic in a lot of ways um yeah i mean the the 
the in some ways the trackpad's already there, right? Because if you put two fingers down on the software keyboard, you can move the the uh, text insertion around. And so there is a pointing device. It's not gonna, you know, it's not a cursor that's available everywhere, but it, it, it is there. And in that way, um, you know, if you're using an external keyboard, you lose that feature. And there isn't the support. I, I was arguing with somebody on Twitter, I think you were part of that chain too, about this idea of, of uh, a trackpad on a, on a keyboard from Apple, which I, I think is less likely, but I kind of feel like they might as well just support Bluetooth trackpads because, you know, just for text insertion, because it's not as if it's not there. The alternative would be something like, I think there was a patent for a keyboard, uh, an Apple patent for a keyboard that you could also just move your finger across yeah. and it would it would act like a trackpad, which, you know, that's how the software keyboard works. So if you had a hardware keyboard that you could do that, that might solve it too. It's like, look, if you want to move the insertion point around, you just, you know, you don't push down on the keys, you just drag your fingers over them and we'll, you know, that that's close enough for us to figure out what you're doing. So maybe there's something there because that, I mean, I... It doesn't get enough publicity, but that's like one of the biggest breaks with the iOS interface metaphor that has ever been is the idea that suddenly you've got a little cursor that you move around on screen. That's that's not something that we've we've really had on iOS before. And once once that's out of the box a little bit, I mean, and I think it's great for productivity. I think it's fantastic on the iPad Pro. It's the the easiest movement of that. I find it harder to move around on the iPhone and on the smaller iPads, but it's really good because you've got that space and it totally works. So. Um, you know, I'd like to see more of that in more places. Plus, simple stuff like if I do a spotlight search, I can't arrow down into one of the it's, results. I I can't help but feel that that's just that's just coming. It has to be coming. Sure, so I, I think I think a lot of these are are very clearly like they're very close and they're and they're just not quite there yet. Um, right. Autocorrect is one. I just wrote a piece about this yesterday on the iPad Pro for uh, for MacWorld, where autocorrect is one where there's this whole autocorrect system that's been built up for the software keyboard because it's really important for the software keyboard. But um, right now, there's no system level way to assign autocorrect on or off for hardware versus software keyboards. So every time I use a hardware keyboard, I have to go turn it off because it is terrible when I'm using the hardware keyboard. It, it corrects things that I type correctly into other things. Right. And I type so fast that I go right over it. My incidence of typos goes up. I'm, I'm correcting things all the time. And it's just one of those things that like, that's a pretty simple thing. I don't know. Again, I don't know how deep into the text code, maybe it would be hard to implement. But from a user perspective, it's yeah. like, it makes sense that my rules for my software keyboard and my hardware keyboard would be would be different. Um, and it goes to the, like the auto capitalization stuff. I don't know if you've tried this, but if you type, um, if you hold down the shift key a little too long, so the first two letters of a word are capitalized, and you're like, okay. oh, I meant that to be okay. lowercase. You lift the shift key off, you backspace, and then you type the key again. On the iPad, it just stays in capital letters because <laughs> it's because, oh yeah right because and that's been a problem from the iPhone since the beginning, which is like no no oh. you toggled the shift key up you probably right. want to type a capital letter here and right uh, like Syracuse yeah. has spoken about this where where when you get to know in a rich text editing interface like Word or text edit where there's bold and italics and underline there are implicit invisible marks effectively. And in right. the old days, like when we used to write on our Apple IIs, you could see them. Yeah. <laughs> right? Show codes, <laughs> right? Show code was a classic. Uh, yeah. It's a but, but in other words, if I start typing Jason, and I type I, on all, for whatever stupid reason, I just want the first two letters to be bold. 
if I go back and delete the A that's bold and I type it again, it's still going to be bold until I hit command B again before I type it. Right. And it's the shift key is like that on iOS. The shift key is sort of like an invisible marker in, in there. It's like a mode that you go into and stays on. Yeah. I, and it's, I mean, that's just a bug, right? I mean, it's really just a bug, but it, it stems from the fact that there's this whole, um, infrastructure of input that has been built up around around the iPhone originally and then the iPad and the external keyboard thing is just kind of this weird thing that's grafted on which in the context of the time made sense but when you're trying to think of this as uh, more of a productivity device and that that a lot of people are going to be using a keyboard that Apple sells a keyboard now yeah. you know it's all stuff that just needs to be better and I keep coming back to the iOS 9 thing I feel like what the real story here is just that Apple already has gotten the religion about this, but they didn't really get it until iOS 9. And that before then, they sort of just kept their hands off of it. And then since they only got the, that, that religion for iOS 9, they haven't had time to build this stuff. And I was hoping to see a little more of it in the build of iOS that ran on the iPad Pro. And I'm still hopeful that maybe 9.2, maybe 9.3, we'll just see this stuff trickling out instead of having to wait for an iOS 10. But, yeah. um, you know, I, that's the optimist in me is that I, I feel like maybe they... They, they have got it, right? They've got the product out there. They've got that, that keyboard. And they, they do know that this is important to the iPad Pro and that they're going to prioritize more of these features to make, it, to make it better. I think that one of the most telling things, and to me, it, it contrasts with I, this, this episode of the show, almost it, it looks like it was organized. <laughs> I think it contrasts so poorly with the pencil, where to me, every aspect of the pencil seems so thoughtful. And yeah. it, but the thing is, is that the pencil is this all new thing that slips into the touch world established by the iPhone. I'm not misspeaking, but like the 2007 iPhone in theory would work great with the pencil, right? And I, I, my guess is that going forward, all future iOS devices will be, uh, have the touch sensor that that the iPad Pro does and will work with the pencil. Or I at least they so. could. And at least all iPads, I think. I don't know. Maybe not the phone, but I don't see why not with the phone. Yeah. I don't I, well, I why agree. not. And it's not the uh, iPad you know Apple Pencil for iPad Pro or something like that. It's the Apple but, Pencil, period. But it doesn't it doesn't force any kind of rethinking of the interface, of the touch centric interface. It's all right. on new. Whereas the keyboard is so in conflict with that. And and not that I don't think, I think that in theory, there's a way to arrive at a, this works, it works just as well with the touch and the keyboard, but you know, it different ways. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a second. But the other example, and it's it just reeks to me of, of the, wait a second, didn't somebody think that this is crazy? So in theory, if you have the hardware keyboard attached, typing should be better in every way. Because it's an actual keyboard, right? Uh, or at least, or if in theory you are the world's uh, a world class type on the iPad screen typist, then it should be at least as good. But in a w a huge way, it's worse because when you're using the on screen keyboard, you can put two fingers down and move the insertion point, and yep. which you know you just spent three minutes praising. I'll, I'll just say ditto. It's one of the greatest inventions of the touchscreen era. And then if you have the hardware keyboard, there's no way to do that. Yeah. I, not, I find that to be absolutely crazy. That it just be, and again, whether it, you know, it, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to solve. It's, I, I, you know, like you said, maybe it's some kind of weird patented material that turns the surface of the keyboard into a, a, 
a touchpad sensor just for going, just for just for moving around. You don't have to do anything else. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but boy, that seems crazy that you get this really cool feature with the on-screen keyboard, and when you hook up a hardware keyboard, you completely lose it. So yeah. the other example, the other, and this one really bothers me, is um, for Command Tab. So the the command tab that they've added to iOS is just it looks exactly like the Max command tab which in and of itself not you know okay it's familiar your apps start with they go left to right with left is your current most app and then as you move to the right you see your the apps you've used in whatever you know the order in which you've used them so right. one command tab gets you to the one you used most recently two gets you to the second most recent etc um but there's the double tap the home button switcher which provides the exact same tab exact same pro- solves the exact same problem which is i want to switch to a, a recently used app but on ios it's completely different it looks different it's this 3d stacked view and it even goes in a different order. Starting with Mac OS 9, it goes from right to left. But they had a left to right version in iOS 7 and 8 with the, the old card style interface. To me, as a general principle, there's absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be the exact same interface, whether you're using Command Tab or using the screen and double clicking the home button. It should be the and they had it they had it right there they had the ios 8 switcher and i think the only reason they switched it for ios 9 was for the iphone 6s with the force touch where you can force from the edge um and i don't think that that's i don't think that's worth it i feel like maybe they should have just made it so that you instead of force touching from the left edge you have to do it from the right edge so that the the order could be the same between the two I, I i don't know but somehow if they wanted to add the force touch switcher they should have done it in a way that they could use the same switcher for double tap home go from the edge and definitely from command tab the command tab switcher should be the same as the double tap the home button switcher and it's 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 to me a lack of thoughtfulness that that it's not so well, I mean, it is more dense to have just the icons up there and not the previews. And if they had it, you know, although you could have that same sort of stack of, uh, you know, angled textures of what those apps were or something. I'm sure I'm sure they could unify it if they really wanted to. But it, it's funny when you think about Apple taking the approach that um, each device is its own thing. And unlike Microsoft's approach, the Mac's going to be the Mac and the iPad's going to be the iPad. This is a case where... Um, when you've got an external keyboard attached, the iPad kind of is a Mac, sort of. It's using the Mac switcher instead of... And, and I don't know whether that's a good thing because the people... <laughs> depends on if your attitude is people who use external keyboards are fossils. They're old people <laughs> who want the old ways. And we're, we're, it's, this is providing some continuity for our users who are less comfortable with the new ways of text input or whether you know it's just a, a, a nice accessory for people who want to uh, input text faster. And, and um, if it's the former, then the app switcher makes sense because it'll scare them less. But it, it's not the same metaphor as the rest of the system. It's this bizarre thing that kind of got imported from the Mac. Yeah, and it just... it In a way, it's... 
it, it, I'm glad that it's there, you know, and I'm glad that it, um, while I've been trying to use my iPad Pro as, as you know, like how much of my work can I do on it, you know, to try this thing out, I'm certainly glad that Command Tab works. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think that just stick, we'll just stick a Mac style switcher in there is crazy when they, especially I, when, when iOS 8 had a, had a, a switching, an, an app switching metaphor that would have worked perfectly with command tab. And I really think that that's a lot slicker. And I feel like it really, I feel like the beauty of it is, and even the new iOS 9 switcher still has the same quality where you can see the apps as you're switching between them. And that doesn't really translate well to the Mac because Mac apps can have lots and lots of windows open, right. but and every single iOS app only has one screen at a current time. And I feel like the visual aspect of that, where it's like a layer of abstraction has been removed and you actually see the apps, Safari looks like the currently showing Safari tab, uh, is is so much more iOS-like. It's so much more what iOS is supposed to be rather than this extra layer of abstraction where Safari is represented by its home screen icon. Yeah, and I, I we don't even want to get into that when you've got two apps running in split view, the switcher is the the iOS based switcher is even weirder because I think the split view on the right just sort of vanishes. Yeah, because that's a little. Of, well, would it show and would it show the split view or would it show the last time it wasn't in split view? And it's a there's a lot going on, and you do get the sense you said it, and I had I had been thinking it. You do get the sense that there was a long debate at Apple about the app switcher stuff and about uh, productivity for keyboard people. And at some point, somebody said, "Look, just put the Mac app switcher in there for mm. the keyboard people. <laughs> just, yeah. just it's good enough for them." So uh, hopefully there are people, and it's just uh, hopefully that it's just some sort of look. We you know we can ship this big iPad now. We're ready to do it. We have. The um, I th I think, and again, this is the sort of thing that even when you know people at Apple and friends, and and they just don't like to talk about timelines. But I think that the iPad Pro has been something that they've been thinking about ever since they started working on the iPad in terms of what size of these devices mm -hmm. would we like to ship, and having to make something that's this big but is weighs as little as it does right because think about the fact that the original ipad you know famously now everybody says you know talking about the weight of the ipad pro it weighs almost exactly the same as the original ipad well then obviously at this size back in 2010 it would have been way too heavy yeah right because it, it, it would have been as thick and as dense as that ipad and now it's heavier um so it took them a while to be able to make something that was this big and that would be tolerable weight. And it clearly, once they've gone to the Retina era, they ran into the, these incredibly difficult things with the graphics to be able to drive a screen this size that's Retina. You know, they had to do the same thing with this that they did with the Retina 5K iMac, where they have their own timing controller to control the whole thing because nothing on the market could drive that many pixels. Yeah. So I think that this year, I think 2015... This is they've shipped a a big iPad the first year that they could have. That you know, with all the engineering constraints that they had to work with to be able to ship something that meets their definition for, a, you know, here's an iP here's what we could we would be willing to ship as an iOS device it, to make one this size. It took until now, and because they could do it now, they're shipping it now. 
even though the software on the software side clearly they're they're not caught up to the level of well what could we do with an iPad of this size yeah I think that's exactly right that this is this feels like like I was saying like I with iOS 9 and with the putting the iPad Pro into getting it ready for production there was a moment of like okay this matters to us now and the problem was that they weren't laying the foundation before and and you can't you can't turn on a dime and add all those features in and so the software is lagging behind and it's a shame that it wasn't um, you also feel like the iPad Air 2 was so overspecked that that was almost like the the mm. pilot program for the yeah. iPad Pro a little bit. Yeah. It's like, whoa, where did this thing come from? It's like, oh, I understand now. But uh, the hard and the hardware is spectacular. It really is a great piece of hardware, and that's why I think it is striking that we come back to the software kind of hasn't caught up. And it's not just like there's the whole other debate about professional software in the App Store and all of that. But like the iOS itself is kind of just it's 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 a little bit behind the, the what the hardware can offer and yeah. it's 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 not surprising because i think they they got a late start because it wasn't a priority until until uh they decided i wonder uh, you know i really wish i i would be fascinated to know the stories behind it i keep the, my gut feeling is also that apple has changed its philosophy about its product lines where it feels that they don't have to be uh, as focused that the, every product doesn't have to be for every person, and I think that evidence one of that was the existence of the iPhone six plus, where it was not the flagship; it was this oversized phone. And I, I think that Apple felt bitten by the fact that they were so maniacally focused on having one iPhone that they got behind in the large phone category, and Samsung showed yeah. them that people wanted that. And I wonder if that bleeds down to the iPad a little bit too, and it gives them the freedom to have this product exist, where it's like, look, we can have a bunch of different iPads. And you know, the mini was the first example of that. And then this is another example where it's like, look, we can have a lot of these iPads. We can't ship them all the same year because it's too much, but we have to ship like a couple, one or two a year. But um, I, I I wonder if there's a story there that maybe it's just me seeing things, but I, I feel like there's something there about Apple um, shifting gears from sort of like, this is the iPhone to saying, we have many iPhones you can choose from. We have many iPads. Choose choose the one you like. Uh, and uh, that's not where they were two, three years ago, but that's where they are now. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a fascinating device, the iPad Pro and pencil and the keyboard. And there's so much to think about. And, but it, it is as interested and fascinated in it as I am. I think you're exactly right. Is that it's it is the device I would recommend to the fewest people, as you know, for like one of their big things. I yeah. guess the the only thing I again I think the iPhone Plus, you know, the six S Plus and six Plus are similar, where. But even maybe even a little bit less, you know. Like I feel like it's it, the people who want the plus size phone, they know it, right? They, like yeah. it's just a gut feeling. If your gut says, "I wish my phone was really big," then go ahead and get it. Whereas this is a little bit, it's a little bit more complicated. Like I, I don't, I really don't think it's not just an issue of, um, like in the old days, I think it used to be in the PowerBook days, uh. It, the only reason to get like you know the old you know back when we used to call them iBooks remember that uh, oh yeah or or even the MacBook the only reason to get one other than a MacBook Pro was I think you know about cost did you you know if you can afford the MacBook Pro you're going to want that MacBook Pro because you're not really saving much else it wasn't like they were lighter you know or thinner they were just slower no the only time I had a MacBook was there was the period where there was a, the MacBooks were smaller. 
and the MacBook Pros were not smaller. It was, and, and that was the reason to get it was you want a smaller laptop, we've got it. But if, if all other things are equal, then I don't know. Do you think the iPad Pro is a little bit like the old 17-inch yeah, MacBook, maybe. right? Where I, it's sort of like, who wants this? And the answer is, there are some people who really want this. Yeah. <laughs> but most people are probably not going to want it. And you could do the industries. And with the iPad Pro, it'll be different industries. But you could say, you know, people who do want to do video editing, this might actually be on the road. This might actually be great for it because it's got the big screen. And right. people who want to uh, who want to draw, graphic artists and, and comic book artists and colorists and all, you know, all sorts of different jobs with the pencil and the giant screen perfect and and like a thousand other niches plus the power user type people who, like who can uh do their whole jobs with it and then right. over time maybe it becomes more than that but that that's my gut feeling now is like yeah like a federico i mean he's the he's the poster boy for it right but i think there are other people and and you know yeah people who just like their, having their ipad and realize they've got office on there and that's all they need um i think it will find lots of surprising audiences. I'm really looking forward to actually in the next six months, there will probably be a lot of stories about, oh, did you realize the iPad Pro is actually great for X? And yeah. you'd be like, oh, that is, of course, it makes perfect sense. I didn't think of it at the time, but it's a, it's the perfect product for that. But you know, that 17 inch PowerBook was like that too. It weighed a ton, it was huge, it was ridiculous. And the people who wanted it, it was in the price list forever because they people just did not want to give up the, the 17 inch in certain, audiences and it wasn't really until you know the finally the 15 was so powerful and the 15 with retina and all of that that it it, it was no longer uh the cafeteria tray laptop was no longer relevant yeah i think it's maybe that's it's probably the 17 inch power book or not i guess uh did they yeah there was a mac yeah they the last one was still was a macbook they definitely had intel versions um yeah i think that's probably a little bit more niche than the ipad pro but i think it's along that spectrum though that you kind yeah. of need to have an exceptional need to justify it. I agree. That, it's not as expensive compared to the other products, I think, and it is not as kind of unreasonable. It's big, and some people are going to get turned off by its bigness, but, yeah. um, you know, there are other people for whom having the bigger screen, you know, it's just yeah. going to be it's going to be good. It's an iPad, right? In all other ways, it is an iPad, and it's got this big, bright, beautiful screen. And if you don't care about the weight and the size of it, you know, it... it it does it does what it says it is a big I, ipad i loved i i linked to it and even said it was just my favorite observation i the one person's observation about the ipad pro that i was jealous of that i didn't think of was horace dejus that it's a desktop ipad not desktop meaning like it runs desktops you know the desktop it gets so overused cuz that's what we mean when we say mac and windows um right but he just meant literally that you put it on a desk and it's meant to be used. And so much right. of what we do now on desktops is actually a laptop. <laughs> right. I thought that was I thought that was so keen and I have to say in all my time and you know and again when you're doing these things and you you know you're in an R racket and you want to write like a review of this thing you do you spend an I spend an awful lot of time on it in the you know the especially that first week where I had the review unit. Um and I did everything on it, even things that I knew while I was doing it. Like, wow, in the long run, I am not going to do, I'm not going to use this to do this. But I was doing it just to see what it was like. And I really have to say that the stuff that I usually do with an iPad on a normal day, just sit there at the end of the day and just sort of, if I'm watching sports on TV and I'm just paying attention to Twitter on the other, you know, this quote unquote second screen, and I'm on the couch, the the big iPad Pro is cumbersome. It's hard to hold in one hand. I mean, it's this is not like something that you couldn't foresee, but it's kind of wants to be used 
on a desk or like on your lap with the keyboard attached so that it's resting on it. And that's to me is different than from what most people I think do with, with their iPad. Yeah, everybody's ergonomics are going to be different, but but it feels it feels comfortable. Yeah, on a table, on a desk, it's totally comfortable. I I think sitting up, it is for me ergonomically, it's fine if I'm sitting upright on in a chair or even on my couch in my living room. Um, when I'm leaning back, like I'm I'm laying on the couch or I'm laying in bed and I'm like checking email in the morning or something like that it's kind of ridiculous. I can get used to it, but it's like, it probably doesn't fit as well there. And I'm not sure people really want to have two iPads, right? They're like their, their big iPad and their small iPad, but it almost comes across like that, that this is not an iPad you, you use everywhere probably. Yeah. I, and it does, <laughs> it does seem like in some ways, Apple is sort of optimizing for the case where you're going to, you're you're going to have a whole house full of Apple products and just pick the one that, you know, a downstairs, you know, I like that, uh, like the daytime, nighttime iPhone guy, you're going to have an upstairs iPad and a, you know, a downstairs iPad, <laughs> which is terrible. It's so gratuitous, but I do kind of feel that way. Yeah, exactly. All right. Let me take another break here and thank uh, another one of our longtime friends of the show, uh, the good folks at Warby Parker. Warby Parker believes that prescription eyeglasses simply should not cost $300 or more. They bypass their traditional channels and they sell high quality, great looking prescription eyeglasses direct to you at a fraction of the usual retail prices, uh, starting at just 95 bucks. And you can go from there and there's, you know, you get the pres- the lenses that go darker or something like that. And it costs a little more and the bifocals cost more. Um, but, 95 bucks is a starting price for a regular pair of glasses. And that comes with everything. They don't upsell you on anti-reflective coatings or anti-glare. They don't make you pay more for the good polycarbonate material that the lenses are made out of. They they all come with that by default. They even come with nice cases and a nice cleaning cloth. Uh, Just really, really great stuff. Buying eyeglasses online sounds crazy, right? Everybody or most people I know are really super picky about something that they're going to put on their face. And how do you get around that? Well, you go to their website and they've got some really cool tools. You can use webcam or just upload a picture of yourself and you can preview what some of the glasses will look like on your face. Uh, They even have a tool that lets you measure your eyes because part of the trick about getting glasses, you want to know exactly how far apart your pupils are. They have a little thing where you use a credit card uh, it's really clever because every credit card is sort of a standard width and you hold a credit card up to your face and they can measure your pupils. Um, it's funny because I got that measurement. I did it with Warby and I, you know, long story short, I've been to the eye doctor a lot in the last couple, last year. Uh, the measurement I got from my eye doctor, exactly the same as Warby Parker's seemingly gimmick-like uh, online thing. Really, really cool. Well, the best part though is they have this try-on program. You go to their website, you measure your eyes, you look at all of the glasses they have on their website in the catalog, you pick five pairs that you like, they send them to you risk-free. They just ship them to you with, you know, like clear, you know, non-prescription lenses, like the ones you would try on in a store. You try these five on at home, you have five days, you just look around, see what other people think, see what the people in your family think, uh, pick the one you like best. You send them all back with a prepaid return label. It's Super couldn't be easier to send them back, but you send them back, you go to the website and say, here's the one that I actually liked. And 
next thing you know, a couple days later, you get your eyeglasses in the mail. Um, could not be easier. Really, really easy way to get new glasses. Um, they've also got prescription and not and non-prescription sunglasses. Uh, anything you want that's eyeglass related, Warby has it. And they even do this cool thing where every time they sell a pair of eyeglasses to someone like you, a regular customer, they give a pair of prescription glasses to someone uh, in need through various vision charities that that are around the world, uh, which is a really great thing. If you think about that, like, imagine being so poor or living in a country where you can't even see sharply because you can't afford or can't get access to prescription glasses. Well, these charities help, and Warby does like a one-for-one matching with them, which is really great. So here's where you go to find out more. Go to warbyparker.com slash the talk show. Warby Parker slash the talk show and check them out uh, next time you need eyeglasses. My thanks to Warby Parker. Uh, anything else you want to talk about this week? I have a couple of other things that are sort of maybes. Uh, no, I, I don't have anything more on my list. I mean, I, iPad Pro has been at the top of mind, I think, for, for so many of us the, the last uh, couple of weeks. There's the, the issue that you touched on about this sort of... And I feel like the I everybody's been talking. I mean, this is like a perennial topic, but the whole idea of is there a market for professional software for the iPad? And if so, what's why why does it seem like it's worse than on the Mac? That just to name a price, that there's a lot of apps that sell for twenty, twenty-five bucks on the Mac, and there are indie developers using that twenty to twenty-five dollars per sale to build a healthy business. And right. on iOS even on iPad, it seems like it's the, uh, you know, five dollars is considered expensive, and you sell an app for ten bucks, and nobody buys it, and it just doesn't seem like there's a market. I don't know. Uh, if you look at the size of the iPad market, I mean, there's this argument that that because the iPhone is so big, um, the that. Uh, People are building for iPhone and they're not worried about the iPad, but the iPad market is what uh, bigger than the Mac market <laughs> on yeah, its own. Definitely, it has because to be. its average selling price is way less and it, the revenue right. is about the same. Right. So uh, I, I'm not sure I buy. I mean, I, I buy the argument that the iPad Pro is not going to have such a huge user base that pro- products just built for the iPad Pro are going to not be able to sell well. I, I, I will agree with that, but I'm not sure I buy it when it comes to the iPad in general because the iPad Air 2 is very functional and so is the iPad Mini 4. And, you know, there are issues with the Mac App Store. Uh, there's no doubt about it that Apple could do a better job uh, of... Uh, of uh, making, I mean, the, about the App Store in general, not the Mac App Store. The, there are lots of issues with the Mac App Store, but you know, the idea that you can't do tryouts and and yeah. uh, you can't do paid upgrades, and you know, it's the same stuff we've been complaining about forever. But I'm not, I'm not sure that I, I, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm not sure I buy that it's not possible for software companies to make money building iPad software. I don't know, and I know none of these observations are original, but I. It does. It does kind of ring some alarm bells for me that uh, just with the iPad Pro, like what are some of the apps that people are talking about? Well, Adobe has the Adobe Sketch app, which is a really cool demo app for the pencil. And one of the reasons it's cool to demo is that Apple has been working with Adobe long, you know, more than just the last right. week or two. They let Adobe in early. Um, people are and saying. I mentioned, I mentioned Microsoft Office, right? They were up yeah. on stage too. 
Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, that, 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 that uh, you know, you can make an argument that the Office apps are better on iPad than they are on Mac. Um, but those two companies, A, they're huge, and B, they've both kind of switched to this subscription model, right? Where you just pay Adobe for the Adobe Cloud and you have a subscription and then you can use all of Adobe software. Well, that's that's fine for Adobe to to <laughs> to to borrow a phrase. Um but how many companies can get away with that? And I don't mean get away with it that that they're cheating, but that they they are they have a rich library of apps and decades of trust with certain user bases that that people are you know will look at the price of that and knowing you know go into it with their eyes open and know that it's going to renew and they're going to pay this every year and they'll say well that's worth it because I use Office all the time. Yeah, I, I like I said, I think it's not easy, and I think that Adobe and Microsoft have this advantage in that they have a subscription relationship with their customers. That means they have ongoing revenue from these things, and not everybody, you know, most most companies can't offer that sort of thing. They don't have the ability. But um, you know, I again, I think there are plenty of things to criticize and ways that ways that the market could be better. But you know, there are professional level iOS apps that come out that people love um, and that people are charged a, a decent amount of money for. Uh, and on top of that, I'm not sure this is any different than a lot of other difficult uh, software environments to to work in. When, uh, when I went to the Release Notes conference, I mean, I, what I heard loud and clear from a lot of the developers there is, you know, focus on niche markets. Don't build a, don't try to build a hit app. Focus on these niche markets that, um, that that wants your stuff, and that'll give them a reason to adopt iOS. Or they're fu- they're frustrated because they're using tools that aren't aren't um, targeted at them. And and uh, and then that's true on the Mac too. But you've got big players, and then you've got some players that build a better mousetrap so well that they grow a following. And then you've got apps that are not necessarily the most exciting, but they do the job for a particular area. And um, I, I think I, I think there's nothing in the iPad market that uh, dissuades me from the belief that that people can still have a success making professional software on the iPad. I, I think if it's just the iPad Pro, it's more problematic. It would be advantageous if that app also ran on the iPhone, of course. Um, but I don't know. I I guess I'm just... I'm not saying that it's not hard and there aren't issues. I just I don't think it's quite as extreme as all that 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 there isn't a place for good professional apps to make money, but that's a it's a very different game, right? The volumes are going to be a lot less and the price is going to be a lot higher and you know, but I don't know. I I just I have a hard time saying it's going to be a barren wasteland, but I think it could be better. Yeah, and I just I don't know. I I feel like I want to say that the iPad Pro will help, but then I, I, then I try to say, well, how am I going to explain why I think that's so? And it's just, it more or less comes down to because it's a really cool computer, uh, and so I don't know that that's I don't know what the path forward is. I can't explain it, but I, it, it I think it needs to happen though, right? Like, but you know, one example of it would be, and and it's the, that app we just mentioned earlier in the show, Ferrite. Now there's that's the exact type of app that I'm talking about. An app that somebody could use to do serious editing of a podcast using this mm-hmm. device. So my hope is that those guys 
do just as well as they would if it was a Mac app and that people don't hesitate to make these $20 in-app purchases to unlock the full app. I don't yeah, know though. I, like I, I just worry though that the that the the consensus seems to be that people in in large enough numbers won't do that for an iPad app. I think um some of it is uh about the fact that there aren't trials, although Ferrite gets around that by making the app free and and it's very limited. And I, I think you can even do that with the office apps that yeah. for a really basic use you can just use them. You don't even need an Office 365 account. And th their point is that you know, once you use them, you're going to want to connect to their services and do all these other things, at which point you need an Office 365 account. I, I think there are ways around it, but I, I get that it's scary and, and moving something like Sketch from the Mac to the iPad, they've said they're not going to do it because they're afraid that you know for $100 that right. their app would be Nobody would nobody would pay that sight unseen. Um, I think there's some truth to that, although I think again, you, people, th there are ways, there are ways. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's very easy to say. Look, they should they should radically change how they handle apps for the iPad, and they should allow side loading or something like Gatekeeper, where on the Mac you can download apps from third parties, and depending on your security settings, you can just run them, and that is a breach in this uh, semi impregnable wall of uh, uh, of, of the, the the fortress of iOS and the App Store, but uh, and it would bring problems, but it would also bring some freedom and latitude that that uh, some of the professional uh, professional software developers might like. I I don't know. It's it's complicated, and I think it's interesting to look at it through the lens of what we were doing just a, a little while ago about the keyboard thing, which is is this is the iPad being allowed to be its own thing and do if we if we start with the ipad do we come up with some different answers than we might for the iphone and does it need to be like no if it's this way on the ipad it's always this way on the iphone or does it become a little bit more like the mac and the attitude toward things like software is a little bit different i don't know I, and i don't know if that would solve it i don't know if opening up uh you know the ability to download software from the internet uh rather than over the app store it would be a cure-all. It might help, but I'm not sure it, uh, it it's enough. Yeah. And I wonder, too, how much of it is that independent developers, whether it's like a small, like, two-person, you know, true indie app-making, you know, duo, you know, sort of like the TapBots gang, which I know is a yeah. little bit more than two guys now. Um, or, you know, bigger, you know, true companies where there's, you know, maybe like 10 employees or something like that, but all the way up to a company as big as Apple, uh, itself that there's the, the whole mythical man month aspect to software development that you cannot just throw engineers at a problem. There's, there's, you know, at some point there's too many, when there's too many chefs in the kitchen, you can't cook anything. It it gets bogged down by the bureaucracy of managing the team. Um, and the world keeps moving and the industry moves and, you know, it's not all in isolation. And I just wonder how much of it is that by having wanting to keep your iPhone app up to date and moving forward and adding features and wanting to have maybe for some services like something like Slack where, you know, the big their big screen interface sort of defaults to a web view. Um, you know, even their native Mac app is a web view, whether it's a website uh, or a Mac app, that by the time you do these things at the at the ends, 
which would be like one end would be the smallest screen like the iPhone and the other would be the big screen like what are you going to do when you're sitting at your desk that the iPad gets lost in the middle and maybe that's it's the exact same reason that some of these that we we seem to bemoan a lack of professional strength apps for the iPad and like we talked about an hour ago that just iOS itself that seems to have sort of like they just never seem to get around to making the iPad optimized. Yeah, I think I think there's a chicken and egg problem there a little bit. And then there's also this issue of getting lost in the shuffle that of course you prioritize the iPhone over the iPad. But right. if you do that, then you lose the iPad because it needs love too, and right. it, it, you know it's got to have some percentage of it if it's gonna if it's gonna gonna succeed. But it's the same platform as the iPhone, and so it's not as if you can send a team off to do the iPad on the side. It, it's all part of the of the of the larger whole, and and it is it is yeah. I, the back to the chicken and egg problem that that you almost need more people saying this is a place where I'm doing work for uh in order to create a place where developers want to be but i think there will be some developer success stories and i think i think maybe in a strange way the existence of the microsoft and adobe apps on there makes it a more welcome place because that gets you a long way between that and all the 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 stock apple stuff you can go a long way with what's already on the ipad pro You, Mm -hmm. you can go a really long way and uh that might make it easier for people to start using the iPad Pro and the iPad Air to do even more of this stuff. And the more welcoming a place it is, then maybe the more welcoming a market it is for people building other other software. But it, it's not going to be easy. There's no doubt about it. I'm just not sure whether there are a lot of things that can be done to make it, uh, you know, easy. I think it's going to always be hard because business is hard. Um, and it comes back again to what we've been saying, which is what level of attention does Apple want to devote to this market and this product line? Because on one level, if you look at the numbers uh, on their own, it is a very sizable business. And on another level, it is in the shadow of an enormous business. And I think that's the, you know been to the detriment of the iPad all along. The existence of the iPhone is as great as it is for Apple. It makes it just so easy to ignore the iPad. Right. And I wrote, I wrote about I, I forget Brian somebody somebody's article. I wrote a piece on Daring Fireball, sort of taking a guy, taking an article apart for arguing that Apple is in trouble because the iPhone is so big. Um, but I think <laughs> yeah. that there, I do think that there. It's not that Apple is actually in a danger because the iPad or iPhone business is so big. But I do think that there it, there are plenty of arguments to make that it's. It, it's not good overall that the iPhone is so big, but they're subtle arguments. And for example, one of them is that the iPad lacks attention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not right. Exactly right. The danger of having such an, a wildly successful business. I wrote a piece about this like a year ago on Six Colors, because and it was all just about the crushing math of the iPhone, right? It's like, it's so big that it's very hard if you're a, a, a responsible manager at Apple not to always choose the iPhone, right? Because every little bit you do improves, you know, if you do a thing that improves the iPhone by 1%, you've, you've made up, you'd have to improve the iPad sales by 40% or whatever, I don't whatever the number is, but it would be, it's just an enormously different scale. And so you need the discipline to say, this business is also important and it deserves a percentage of our time. But I can tell you, as uh, the guy who worked at Macworld, 
that um, once we were part of PC World, which was larger than us, it became very difficult to get people to pay attention to us because we were a small fraction of the business. And if you, you know, it takes some discipline to say, I have two businesses that I run and I need them both to succeed. And it's very easy to say, uh, well, where can I get the most return? It's the big business. So let's just invest in the big business and not worry about the small business. And sometimes I see that with the iPhone and the iPad. Yeah, I, it's it, it's it's a much more nuanced argument to be had, but I do think it's it's there and it clearly sort of stands out. So switching gears a little bit, there's this article, I have not written about it, and I didn't even read it until just before we recorded, but Fast Company had an article this week by Bruce Tognazzini, a.k.a. Tog, and Don Norman of the Norman uh, whatever group. What's it called? NNG. Might be the Norman group. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the uh, Nielsen Norman group. Yeah. And this this article broke my heart <laughs> because, I mean, were you a fan of Tog back in the day? Yeah, I, I guess. I guess. Did you ever Ask read Tog, Tog, right? Tog on design. Tog mm-hmm. was a guy who was at Apple like in the 80s and really kind yeah. of spearheaded the original uh, human interface guidelines. And Tog on design, I don't know how I got my hands on it because it was sometimes it was hard to get those books back then. I don't know. But at some point, like in high school, I got my hands on Tog on design. And I realized I was like, so it was, it, it was the sort of thing I loved thinking about, but it, it, it was like, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I guess at the time I thought more, I wanted to design interfaces and do that. And instead I've, but I was right in a way though. I just, instead of really doing much design work, I just think about them and comment on them. But I knew that this was the field that I wanted to, to dig into. And what I remember in particular about Talgun design was he had this whole chapter about how they started with checkboxes and a checkbox was uh, on or off zero or one and not very hard at all. And I think it even got into, like, remember in the old Mac, it, it used to be filled in with an X instead of a check? Like a phantom? Oh, no, no. yeah, right. It was an X inside the square. Yeah. Yeah. We're, I mean, just talking, you were talking like System 6, System 7, like before they mm-hmm. went to color. Um, but then the other thing, but the, 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 the meat of the chapter, though, was that they encountered, there were certain scenarios where something that clearly was asking for a checkbox could have an indeterminate state and it wasn't on or off but it was like halfway and i can't think of an example off the top of my head but the, he had well, a good it, example it, it's the i remember the role the idea of a roll up where you've got a you've got a couple boxes that are checked underneath and the roll up is where you can toggle something on and off um, and some of them are checked and some of them are not so you can't say that the roll up is on or off it's in this indeterminate Right. Some some on, some off. Right. Here's an example. An example would be, let's say I select the name Jason and I hit Command-I and I italicize it in the middle of a sentence where the sentence wasn't italics. Uh, and then when I still have Jason selected or I select just the J and I go up to the menu where it shows me italics, the, the word italics in the menu would have a check next to it. Now, that's not a check mark a checkbox, but it still is a check, and it's the same problem. Mm-hmm. What do you do, though, when I select 
your name and the next word. Right. Where one of them is, so one word is italicized and one is not. What do you put next to the word italic? And they were stumped by this. And then the solution they eventually came to, and I, they still use, is to use like a dash. So there's a check to say that it's on, but then there's a dash to show that it's sort it's of on. Yeah, it's complicated. I th- th- that chapter and the fact that they some company that you know and I well I knew who Apple was at the time and I knew Apple was the the computer company that I was most interested in but the fact that they had they had clearly spent as much time thinking about this problem as in my imagination Apple spent on problems like this that you could just go off and have like a team of your top people spend like a week trying to figure out how to solve the problem of what do you use when a check mark isn't quite right I was like this this is what I want to do. Like, so I don't want to say he was a hero, but he was clearly somebody who like inspired me to get into this industry. This article of Fast Company, it breaks my heart. It's, it's so bad. You, I told you to read it before the show. What did you think? Yep. Yeah, I think what I, my response was, it's just as bad as I had feared from seeing it linked everywhere. Um you know, there, there are a couple things going on here. It's how Apple is giving design a bad name. Bad name. Um, that's the headline. Of, that's the actual yeah. headline of the article. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the way it's played, uh, and I can't tell how much of this is the writers and how much of this is the editors. Um, they want this story to be how current Apple design is a failure. They want this to be about the. You know, the sort of last couple of years, functional high ground, skeuomorphism debate kind of issues have left Apple in a place where it's kind of lost it. That's the story that they that they want to tell and that um, fast company design wants to tell, right? That's yeah. that's that's the story. The problem is, and this is, I saw um, Richard Karras, who used to work at Apple, he, he tweeted a link to this. And my response was, I love those guys, but you realize they've been complaining about Apple design for like 20 years now. <laughs> and, and that's one of my problems with it is, I think it's, well, I know, it is disingenuous. I'm just not sure exactly who's being how disingenuous. It is disingenuous to suggest that this is a comment about anything Apple has done just in the last couple of years. Because these guys have been complaining. These guys have not been at Apple since basically right when Steve Jobs came back. And they have been complaining about Apple's bad design for a very long time. They have been complaining about it. Uh, they complain about the iPhone design. you know. And, and I don't want to say that they don't have valid complaints. Some of their complaints about usability are right. Um, there are some aspects where there's the the old man yells at cloud kind of thing where they're like, it's it, it's totally Apple's fault, but why is Google following them? And Microsoft is also doing things that aren't that great. Where it's like, oh, so everybody then, except you, because you know how to do this and nobody else does. And, you know, again, there's plenty to criticize here, but I'm not sure this is the article that, that does the best job of it because... It's not new for them to criticize Apple design. They've been doing it a very long time. I, I think a lot of the things they criticize are not recent. They're root issues about the touchscreen interface where they don't like it. And there's this little veneer that I have to, I have to say I find kind of distasteful where I feel like, you know, they're really mad that there aren't drop-down menus. Yeah. <laughs> and that there's not the discoverability. Because what they did with the drop-down menus and stuff in the early Mac, now that was aces. And now, you know... Now, these devices aren't discoverable like that. And they're right that they're not. But, you know, 
it's we've come a long way since then and there are kind of different metaphors at work there and you can dislike them all you like but um it's very difficult to play this as being like apple is in a is in a design tailspin the last couple of years because if you really went back and looked at what these guys have been criticizing they've been saying apple's been in a design tailspin for like 15 years or 20 in theory if you had told me a few years ago that Bruce Tognazzini and Don Norman would write this article about Apple design in 2015. I might have thought a few years ago, ooh, that might be really good. And the reason why, and I think at a fundamental level, they have a sort of, they approach design from what I would describe as a sort of academic background. And they use a sort of academic level of rigor and they, they, are both famously very, very strong proponents of user testing, where yep. you you get real people and you study them in a very formal way, and with you know, uh, with a real procedural aspect to it, and you study you know A/B test all sorts of different things and measure response times and and stuff like that, um, and Apple. You know, the modern Apple that they're comparing to, it's not quite, I wouldn't call it cowboy, but it is definitely not academic. It is a lot more of a a liberal arts style approach to design. And that to me, there are differences and there's definitely some things, you know, I I think you could, there's on this general subject, a a book could be written, a wonderful, thoughtful book that would, you know, be worth referring to for decades to come. Uh, by talking about the differences between the old Apple that was more academic in its approach to user interface design and the new Apple, which is not. And this article is not it. This article is definitely more old man yells at at, at the cloud. Uh, and it really well, just broke my heart. I, I remember, so I started at Mac user as an intern in the summer of 93. So it was like right when the Newton came out and it was, it was in the Scully era. And then I got to work there through the, through the um, sort of darker, even darker times and they got darker still. And then jobs came back. And these guys are both representatives of that kind of like first half of Apple's existence. And you're right. You, you know, I, uh, I don't know how much you had, if any interaction with Apple at that time, I was just a super junior editor, so I didn't have a lot of it, but that Apple was so unlike the Apple that Steve Jobs fashioned when he came back because it was like super, they had pie in the sky, R&D, they were super academic focused. And the, the, the problem was that they spent a whole lot of money and they had a hard time shipping products. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not saying that these guys aren't brilliant and that they don't make some good points, but it was a different company then. And the the results of when Steve Jobs came back and said, you know, we're not going to be like that anymore. We're going to be like this. They started to ship some really great products. Now, were they compromised in ways that perhaps some of the earlier Apple products weren't? Maybe, but those early Apple products were compromised in all sorts of other ways. So, um, you know, it, it, it's the academic Apple, I would say, as much as I appreciate it conceptually, I got to live through the the, the latter days of it, and it was bad. I mean, it was like they, they did a bad job with products, and they might have been thinking about it really hard, but the the actual company was falling apart, and the products were bad. And I, you know, I don't know. Tog was long gone, I think, by then. Yeah. But 
I, you know, I don't know this this article. Yeah, there's some there's some old man yells at cloud in here where it's like, why is nobody listening to us and why are all the touchscreen interfaces bad? And I don't agree that they're bad. There's some valid criticism in there. They have some very they they pick on some very specific things that are very obviously. Um, problematic in the way uh, Apple's products are designed, I think, and totally, totally valid. Uh, and then there's this third thing at work, and that's what I can't tell it, whether it's how much of it is Fast Company and how much of it is the writers, which is what's the news peg for this? How do we make this relevant? Yeah. And the answer is to sort of play up that Apple has suddenly gotten to this point. And, you know, the, these aren't the, the, the guys who cried wolf. Um, this is a this is an alert about what's going on at Apple right now, and the fact is these are the guys who cried wolf. These guys have been complaining about Apple design for years. Yeah, and there's aspects of it though of their criticism that to me are just wrong. Like they're complaining about that on like the iPhone and I guess iPad, but like on iOS that the fonts are too too thin to read. Uh, and I I think that was true of the, the iOS seven public beta or i guess it wasn't a public beta but like when iOS 7 was first shown two years ago at wwdc and and they were using the the really lightweight version uh, yeah. weight of helvetica noia throughout the ui including it was like the default font for the the body of an email i would totally agree i think that mm -hmm. that was too thin but they changed that before it even shipped yeah and uh, that was two years ago the fonts are not too thin and they're and they kept saying that the contrast is too low almost all the text i read on my phone is black text on a white background or yep. even in like messages where you've got these colored backgrounds i don't think it's a lack of contrast and i think that the uh the font size uh choice for system-wide control of the font thing is really great in ios i i i think that they're totally i think it's i think that what they're saying as a problem is actually one of the things that iOS does great, I think, and especially with the switch to uh, San Francisco, I think text has done nothing but get more readable on screen. And I say I that as somebody I mean, with less than perfect vision at this point. <laughs> I think I think, and some of what they're picking up on is is some technical issues, which again makes makes it feel a little more dated. Which is uh, some apps haven't really adopted the uh, text size, yeah. the, the system wide text size format. Like Google's apps, yeah. last time I checked, didn't right. didn't do it right. And so uh, it, my mom was using the Gmail app, and she was uh, she's got an iPhone six now, so it's scaled up and it's bigger, and she can read it better. But she wanted to scale up the the font. And but she uses the Gmail app, and it does it doesn't scale up, and you know that's a that's a technical issue where app developers yeah. aren't adopting it. But the idea that you can set a system wide text size if you want it bigger or smaller is is not a bad one. Yeah. Um, Slack and, doesn't yeah. do it, which bothers yeah. me. Like Slack's default font size is actually beneath the threshold of what I can comfortably read, and they don't yeah. follow the system wide setting. And I don't want to change my system wide setting for Slack because I like the default system wide setting for the system font, but I feel like if you're going to go with a custom font, which Slack has, then you need custom font size. And but anyway, I really doubt that Norman and Tog are talking about Slack. Yeah. But no, um, my, my big problem with the, with the, I think the premise of the article that Apple is destroying design is that in the end, it's so reductive. What they're basically saying is, look, there are two ways to do design, and one is you start in the user and you think about how about usability and you build a design from it, and the other way is you just care about how it looks and you don't care about it. And Apple's doing that, and we think you should do this. And it's like I think it's really unfair that to say that Apple's doing that. I think Apple, I think the fact that Google and Microsoft are 
also doing it to a degree suggests that they're all struggling with how you do touch interfaces and create yeah. discoverability. I think, you know, I, I don't think Apple's like, Psh, as long as it looks pretty, the usability doesn't matter. I think it's a way more complicated story than that. I do think it's true that, you know, Johnny Ive has a huge amount of weight and he is a very visual designer. And so there perhaps is too much of an emphasis on that in a lot of the, the decisions Apple makes and that, that he might need a counterbalance of some sort that isn't there, but um, not to the extremes that this article seems to take it, where it's the destruction of design and it's all about style over function. And, and I, uh, I just don't, you know, I don't they, agree. They argue, they argue in favor of the Android system-wide back button. Yeah, which which, is, which if you've used it, I feel I find I haven't you now I haven't used it in a while. I do have a new Android phone here that I've been trying just to try to stay up on it. But my history with the Android back button was infuriating because you yeah. never knew where it would take you. It's, the previous app, the previous function in this app, or <laughs> so back I to the home screen, right? Back to the home screen, right? Back to yeah. the home screen. Oh, I thought it's I was going back to a usability. different page. It's really bad and. And they don't mention that iOS has added, I think, a very clever system-wide feature in iOS 9, which is effectively gives you that. It gives you that cross-application back so that when you're in mail and you tap a link and you go to Safari and you just want to go back to where you were, which is a real problem and iOS yeah. wasn't great at, but now actually is really pretty good at because it 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 both gives you like just tap here to go back to where you were, but way better than Android. It tells you where it's going to take you because it goes back to mail. And, and the, whole, the whole thing that drives me nuts about it. sacrifices some beauty yeah. for discoverability, right? Which is right. exactly what they say that Apple's not doing. Now, they do make some good points. I th and I feel like mm -hmm. they, they could have written a whole article about uh, but it would have, you know, the old style would have been to also propose a solution. But they do point out that undo is better in on the Mac than on iOS because on the Mac pretty much everything you can do you can just go command Z and a whole lot of things that you could might want to undo you can undo and right. iOS undo is is literally like a joke like they didn't know what to do they knew they didn't have it and an engineer at Apple like as a joke said well we could just make it so that you shake the phone and undo it and Scott Forstall was like great that's it. Do it. That's I, I, and they were like, no, no, that's not really it. And he's like, no, let's do it. Like and actually, in tech, in tech, starting with iOS eight, the t the undo is better because the um the the smart bar or whatever they call it, the quick bar, um has an undo icon on it. So right. if you're in text, you can at least undo it. And there are undo buttons in other places, but it's not it's not system wide. You know, unless you're using a keyboard, in which case you can usually command Z now and right. uh, and undo. But yeah, the the bumping the phone thing was always. There's nothing worse than you're out in the world and you see somebody like shaking their phone like a tambourine and it's because they need to try and get that thing back that they just undid by mistake. So it's an interesting it is there's an interesting argument to be made there that you know given the 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 idea the basic gist of the iOS interface how do you implement undo it's a it's a heck of a puzzle and Apple clearly hasn't solved it yet and I don't know what the answer is but on the other hand I really don't think that it's a real world problem that's set iOS back like what I see in the real world and again I I just feel like they these guys have missed it is I see real people who are doing more stuff with either the iPhone or even if it's like Android which is clearly follows the iPhone's fundamental idea of what the design is like that mm -hmm. they're they're doing more than they ever did on their old computers because they're it's it 
it it actually is a better design for for most people. Right. Because of the amount of complexity that's been packed into that screen, it's actually kind of a harder challenge and people feel really comfortable using their phones. Yeah. Uh, I have one last sponsor to thank, and uh, it's our good friends at Harry's. You guys know Harry's. Harry's makes uh, high-quality shaving and uh, personal grooming products. Uh, they just sent me, a, I just got a new thing. They have a, a facial wash. So now I've got a fancy uh, a fancy facial wash that I can take with me in the shower. Great products like that. Uh, you guys have heard of them before. They've sponsored the show. Many times, um, but what they want me to tell you about right now and remind you while it's while it's still fresh is that they are the official partner of the Movember Foundation, and they are donating money and helping to raise awareness for men's health. Movember is the thing where uh, you, what you do is uh, you grow a mustache for the month of November, and then when people ask you. Hey, are you growing a mustache? Then you tell them, I'm doing it for Movember. It's a thing where we raise awareness for men's health issues. It's like a gimmick. You could do it while you're writing your national uh, writing national novel writing month thing. That's right. Simultaneously. Uh, yeah. Grow a mustache, write a novel. Well, Harry's is a big partner in this. They do all sorts of good stuff, and they're raising money for this. Um, and to top it off, the fact that they're they're raising money for a great cause – uh, they make great products, and it's super, super convenient. Where you can just get into the get into the Harry's uh, uh, products, and then you just you never have to go buy shaving stuff again. You just sign up for it. You get you find out how frequently you need new blades, and they just ship them to you. Uh, really high quality stuff. Great blades. They own their own factory over in Germany. Great handle. Great their their shaving creams and lotions and stuff. Everything I've ever tried from them, I really like. Amazing packaging, really cool stuff. Uh, and their website is super easy to use. My dad, uh, he was not really that good with computers. My dad saw that they are always sponsoring my stuff. He needs to shave. He signed up for it. He actually navigated the website and bought it, and he called me to tell me how proud he was of it. Um, super, super easy. They say you can get started in 30 seconds or less. I believe it. It's that easy. You just sort of go there, pick what you want, you enter your name, your credit card, uh, your address, most of that stuff for most of you probably autofills. And then boom, next thing you know, two days, two, three days later, you got a nice little Harry's kit in the mail. Also makes a great gift. So if you want to get somebody else in your family, a little starter kit from Harry's for the holidays, uh, now's the time to order. Uh, here's the thing. You can go there, go to harrys.com and enter the code talk show. These guys don't have the, the, it's just talk show. Uh, and they will give you five bucks off your first order. So you could get started uh, with that code talk show. You could get the starter kit for just 10 bucks. That's a razor, a couple of blades, some, some shaving cream. Great deal. So my thanks to Harry's. Go to harrys.com uh, slash talk show. You've got the, the membership thing going at six colors. That was, that was what I was going to mention. So yeah, yeah, I, 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 I did it. I spent like a year fussing and... Uh, about whether I wanted to do it, and the implementation actually took like an hour. <laughs> so after a year of saying, "Do I want to do this? Do I want to do this?" I, I did it in an hour. So how did you? How how does that work? How did you? Because I, it's funny. I did memberships for Daring Fireball a long time ago, yeah, and then I've it, got the card, and it. You know, I, really, the only thing anybody ever got out of it was a card, mm -hmm. and I kind of moved away from it. And it's it. 
well, not kind of. I totally moved away from it. But I, it, I spent an awful lot of time implementing it, <laughs> and I didn't have any features. It was. I think it's just me stubbornly trying to build everything for Daring Fireball myself. <laughs> so, what are the mechanics behind it at Six Colors? So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, technically, the, fortunately, that there is a, a company that has um, integration with Stripe, which does credit card processing, called Memberful. And Ben Thompson uses them for Stratechery. Federico uses them for Mac Stories. And I had been looking at them since sort of mid-year for uh, for Six Colors. And they're very easy to work with. You pay them a monthly fee, and they take a percentage of the credit card transaction, which includes the percentage that's going to Stripe. And um, and they uh, and you drop some. They've got a WordPress integration, but of course, like you, I am using Movable Type, which has no integration. But there's a JavaScript integration where you put some JavaScript in the header of the page, and it basically takes all the links to Memberful uh, and turns them into little pop-ups. And I actually got an email from somebody who said that it was the easiest uh, e-commerce thing they'd ever seen because they never left the page. You, you know, you click, yeah. and a little box comes up, the Stripe box comes up, and on the back end, Memberful does all the membership. What, what they provide is uh, the sign-up stuff and they keep track of the members and you can cancel and renew and update your information and all of that using their servers. And then they have integrations with other things. So there's a uh, the benefit. I mean, the primary reason for it is to say, you know, you want to support me in what I'm doing. And the more people who do that, the less freelance work I'll take. There's some freelance work I really like to do for various reasons, but there's a lot of it that I, in the first year of being a, a, an independent person, I've said yes to because it's very hard to turn down money when you're starting out and you don't have a salary anymore. And some of those yeses I would like to turn into no's and instead spend that time writing more on six colors. But uh, so that that's, that's the premise. Um, but I also didn't want it to be a purely kind of karmic subscription I, where I didn't want to go out and say, hey, give me money because you'll feel good and you'll help me. I wanted to at least give something back because I felt like it was important that there be something tangible as a part of it. So uh, um, although I did think about the the membership cards, like, um, like the one I've got for Daring Fireball, um, what I decided was to do, I wanted to do a newsletter. Um, and I was thinking about frequency and do we want it to be weekly? Uh, sometimes that's a bit much for people. Uh, do I want it to be uh, you know, every other week. And I decided for the start, at least I want it to be monthly and I'll try to make it a little more substantial. And at that point I'm doing a monthly release. I might as well call it like the six colors magazine. And that's mostly because, you know, I used to work at a magazine, Dan Morin, who writes some stuff for the site. You know, he works, he worked at, at a magazine too. Um, it's not going to be like a super fancy, uh, magazine magazine. It's going to be a monthly, you know, a bunch of words and some pictures in a newsletter, but that's what we're going to do monthly for the subscribers and maybe throw in some extra stuff. So there'll be something that only people who pay can get, but the goal is not to like gate content on the site or anything right. like that. The site, the goal is actually to use the, the money from the people who are subscribers to generate a lot more stuff on the site for everybody to see. So right. it's and a it, combination of karma and getting something in return. Right. And if there's a certain, you know, However, you're a fast typist, but there's still a limit to how many words are going to come out of your fingertips in a month. Yep. And to get more of those, more of that writing on sixcolors.net and less of it spread, or, spread about the, you know, dot com places. Um, <laughs> sixcolors.com. You can spell it with, you can spell the colors with a U though, but it is a dot, it is a dot com. I was really hung up on getting a dot com for this one. 
but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that is. I, I think I would say that's the number one feature of the Six Colors subscription is not the newsletter, the the Six Colors magazine. It's that uh, the more people subscribe, the more I can do. And honestly, also the more I can pay Dan Morin to do and the more stuff we will do on the site instead of taking an assignment for something that, you know, that is not going to be on the site. It might be on a site with, you know, a bunch of ads on it that you don't want to see or on a subject that you don't really care about. Um, we, you know, we'd like to be able to do less of that and more of six colors because, you know, it's like more of what you want to see. Yeah. And I find, and I'm sure that you feel the same way, but it's, when I went full time with Daring Fireball, it wasn't just about getting the revenue up to the level where I, I could call it a salary. It 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 mattered to me that it was coming from multiple sources. Like I wanted it to be a stool with three or four legs, and yeah. sure, maybe one of the legs would get bigger over time. Like I get more money from say the weekly RSS sponsorships than the deck or whatever but that and maybe five years from now that now that would change though and maybe if you know the demand for the rss sponsorships waned maybe the deck would get more popular or whatever but i've just felt much better when i had four or five things that were all contributing to wow that's i can call that i can actually say i do this full time than if it was all coming from one source because that Mm -hmm. just made me very nervous because what happens you know as we've seen, the industry <laughs> changes, and yeah, things that and, used and to be popular don't aren't popular forever. And direct support from users is one that I feel like if it if it works, boy, that's one that should should stay consistent as long as I keep doing good work. Right, and diversifying is is definitely a part of it. Um, I did hear from a bunch of people when uh, I launched the site who said, I want to support you and I'm not going to sponsor your website because I have nothing to sponsor. And right now that's the only that seems to be the right. only way that you're being supported. Basically saying you're ad supported. Why don't you also be reader supported? And that that was definitely a motivator to make this happen is it wasn't just my scheme of like, oh, they will pay me money. Ha ha. It was people saying, I will I will pay you money. Let me pay you money for what you do. And so that was part of the plan. But you're right. It's also about diversity. I saw that during the during the the, the recession that, you know, at, at IDG, the, you know, a company that is largely run by salespeople, that there is that moment when the sales go off the cliff where suddenly the fact that you've got these hundreds of thousands of paying subscribers became uh, a, a much greater asset than they had ever appreciated because those people were still there and they were still paying, even though all of your clients that you used to sell ads to have have vanished because they're afraid of the recession. And I, I that that lesson stuck with me that being being diversified is not a bad thing. And when I left Macworld, that was always part of my plan was to have like um, uh, some money coming in. So the incomparable has sponsorships. So there's some money coming in from that. And I wanted to do tech podcasting. So I I do a couple things at Relay and there's money coming in from that. And uh, and Six Colors, I figured, okay, if I can do a weekly sponsor like you do on Daring Fireball, that there would be some money coming in from that. And then that was my plan was sort of like the three-pronged attack. And in reality, um, I picked up some freelance writing work, which I hadn't planned. Um, and uh, and then there was this thing kind of floating out there about the the reader support. So that that makes it that much more diverse and also lets me gives me the freedom, like I said, of making some decisions of saying no. Because the first year in, I felt like it was very hard for me to say no to anything because it's like, you know, you don't have a job and these people will pay you money to write an article and you could write that article. Yeah, so why don't you go ahead and write that article? <laughs> and at some point you need to be able to say, I did this with you with Macworld, right? Where I finally, one of these days I came to you and I said, you want to write a back page column? And you're like, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so, it was a huge deal to me when it happened, though. I mean, and it was it did come about at a time when I was, you know, daring fireball. I mean, it was it it it's a lot more successful now than it used to be. But it was never there was never any point where it was like, wow, all of a sudden it's it's successful. It's just been like a slow, steady increase. And you know, ten years ago, you know, getting to write a back page column for MacWorld, you know, maybe once a year or so, actually was like. It, yeah, like we need that money. <laughs> that uh, was good. I, I remember very clearly uh, you wrote a, a how-to article for me about uh, BB Edit, and you were doing Daring Fireball at the time. But you wrote this article; it was like a two-page, three-page how-to article. And I remember later you said to me, "I think I might have made more money from that article than I made from Daring Fireball." <laughs> yeah, it was really, really early on, yeah. and the, and the freelance rates at MacWorld were really good back then. Yeah, but they were. <laughs> still, I mean, that was that was in the in the early days, and then and then you know, and then over the, over time, you made more money from Daring Fireball, and there comes that point where you say, you know what, I need to say no to things, and I need to focus on the thing I want to do. That it, and and I have the ability to do that now because of the money that it's bringing in. And yeah. ultimately, I said this in my in my post about the six colors uh, membership, membership thing is. Um, Ultimately, what I would love to do is do six colors and some podcasts as my job. That would yeah. that would be like the perfect thing. And uh, I'm not I'm not at that point yet. But I would love I would love to be able to get there. And the the membership thing helps me helps me move toward that. Yeah. So, do you, how's the reaction been so far? It's been good. I had a little number in my head of. Um, of how many people I hoped would be done, you know, would sign up after the first sort of week. And it's within like, it got within about 15 of that after the first week, which I was really happy about because I thought that was just the beginning. And uh, I, you know, I haven't even mentioned it very many places other than on Twitter and on the site. Right. So, you know, there's there are more people who will hear about it over time. And so I hope that that number will grow. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that initial like week one number. I think that's, I think it's, uh, that's pretty good. I'm surprised the percentage of people who choose the annual and just pay for a year up front is, is much larger than I thought. It's about three quarters. Yeah, that's um, what I did. And that's beautiful because that's people who say, look, I'm not going to try it out for a month. I'm, I'm in, I'm in for the year. I think that I think that's really great. So well, it's been going well, pretty well, and Memberful has made it really easy. So that's they're not paying me to say this. In fact, I'm paying right. them. But that that's made it a lot easier too to not have to deal with a lot of the stuff that um, I was afraid of about dealing with uh, dealing with money. And I've only heard from two people who said uh, what I expected, which was I pay you know I paid sixty dollars a year for MacWorld why or fifty dollars a year for MacWorld why am I paying sixty dollars a year for six colors and the answer <laughs> is well you're doing this to support me number one and number two MacWorld was able to have hundreds of thousands of people pay them and I'm not gonna have if it, tell you what if I have a hundred hundreds of thousands of people paying me for a six color subscription I'll cut the price <laughs> I I guess I. Yeah, I never. I, I only I, got two of those, though, so it's okay. My reaction is to laugh, and then I want to stop laughing because I want to say I, I, I never want to tell other people what to do with their money, and and I agree, you know, it's a very personal thing, and and if that's really how you feel, okay. But you, you know, I do feel like there's a teaching moment there about the scale of something like six colors or daring fireball, so and the I sort replied of, to both of those people. I replied to both of those people. And I had somebody tell me, oh, you shouldn't, don't reply to those people. It's like, no, I, I, I think it's a teachable moment to say, look, you know, this is mostly about supporting me. 
Um, it's not, you know, I, I'm not supported ad supported at the level of, of something like a Mac world, but, um, you know, a hundred percent of it is going into, you know, we don't have a lot of corporate over overstructure here and, you know, you should do it because you want more stuff on this site that you like. And if that makes you feel good and you want to get some benefits out of it too, then you should do it. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. The site's still free. I'm not making you feel bad about it. I'm not trying to guilt people into giving me money. Um, please continue to read the site. The RSS feed is free. The website is free. Keep reading the site, right? And both people responded quite positively, and one of them actually said, I'll pay. <laughs> so, you know, that's not bad, batting 500 there. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. That's, it makes me warms my heart. It makes me feel good about the state of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, I... I I knew you were talking about, it, and I you know I'm the master of having uh, ideas <laughs> to do things like with the site or to start a new site or something, and then you know years go by and yeah I'm still thinking about it. Uh, yeah. So I knew you were thinking about this from a while ago when you first struck out on your own, but I I I think hitting it right on like right around the one year anniversary it was it somehow felt right. Yeah yeah. Any anyway, I'm glad that it. Uh... In the end, it's a bonus feature that I got a little more of a track record to do it, even though I was just hopelessly, um, you know, procrastinating. And it's hard. It's hard to ask for money from people. It really is. And you don't know whether they're going to, you know, they're they're judging you at that point. So that makes it a little harder. And I got better over the first year at asking sponsors for money. But uh, at asking the audience, asking the readers for money is just, this is why I'm not in ad sales. And so it, I think ultimately that's why it took me a year to actually do it is that I just, every time I thought about it, I'm like, oh man, I don't really want to do that. And I would just put it off. So I, you know, finally I got kind of spurred into it and, uh, and given a deadline and, uh, by some friends and I was like, all right, okay, I gotta, I gotta make it happen in, in November. So let's do it. So I did it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. And anybody out there who's thinking about it, go check out uh, sixcolors.com and you can see how to become a subscriber yourself. Um, Jason, I thank you for your time. It was a good episode. Uh, anything else you want to promote? I you want to mention it. some of these other podcasts you're on? You're on, I'm counting right here. I was going to make uh, 40. <laughs> it's too many. I'm not sure I can count that high. I'm on four four weekly podcasts and then others that kind of come and go with the wind. But upgrade yeah. and and clockwise on relay and uh and the incomparable. Those are the those are the big three. Um yeah, and uh and yeah, you know that new Star yeah. Wars movie is coming out. Maybe uh maybe I need to talk to you about that sometime. That might be a good I thing wonder, to do. I wonder, you know, or is that going to be the holiday spectacular this year for the talk show? Seems like it would be a good thing. Like now, the idea, the idea that we did a holiday spectacular last year, where you know, in that <laughs> nether zone where there's no news happening around the holidays, we just talked about Star Wars, and now we're going to have a new Star Wars movie. But I wonder is is it is it fair to do it right when it's new right. and assume that everybody's gone to see it in theaters? I almost feel like with this one, it is fair. Like, come on, who's not going to go see this in theaters? I think so. Yeah. Well, if, if it's that nether week, that's going to be like a week and a half after it came out, yeah. two weeks after it came out. That's plenty of time. For the people who care and the people who don't care should just not listen. 
or they could listen and they don't care. <laughs> Either way, right? I doubt there are going to people be people who want to listen to many hours right. talking and the about other Star thing Wars too is yet have podcast, not seen the new Star well, Wars movie I guess some, two weeks later. It seems like that's a really small. No, because I was going to say it's it's pretty easy to avoid spoilers on a podcast because even if you're using a podcast player that plays auto plays the next episode, once you realize that we're talking about Star Wars, it's pretty easy to pause it and wait until you go see it. So let's file it under probably that we will talk about the Force Awakens. Yeah. I thought you were going to do a Yoda there. No. <laughs> All right. I will not. Spoil, sp- spoil podcast, do not. 